Hello, what's up, what's up, everyone? Welcome to The One Inch Barrier. I am your host, Juan Carlos Ojano. Ooh, I hope you're all staying safe and staying healthy and staying at home. And by the way, um, Patreon page is up and running. I didn't... Just a sec. I think the next week we're going to have a new episode, the final episode. Uh, so watch out for that, for the 2019 retrospective. So we already reviewed Creating Glory... Uh, Corpus Christi and Les Miserables. So, Honeyland next week. Next weekend, next Sunday. Uh, yeah, so for this episode, we're going to talk about the film that won Best Foreign Language Film at the 56th Academy Awards. That film is Fanny and Alexander, or in its original language, Fanny or Alexander, written and directed by Ingmar Bergman. So, this was Sweden's third win and ninth nomination. So I tried my best to summarize this film, and this is my best. <laughs> this film is about two children, Fanny and Alexander, duh, who um, celebrate Christmas with their family, and they're living a peaceful life of childhood and imagination until their father died, and their other and their mother remarries Oscar, the bishop in their place. So when they move into his uh, house he starts to implement this authoritarian parenting that disrupts the lives of the children and their mother, Emily, now that they're away from their family, their extended family. Yep, roosters. <laughs> yeah, so that's Fanny Alexander. So our guest for this episode is from Portugal. Uh, you heard him already in a 2001 episode where we discussed No Man's Land. And other nominees of 2001. He's a contributor at the Film Experience, a writer at Magazine HD, and and Photogenie. Uh, I'm so happy to have him back <laughs> uh, for this episode. Please welcome Claudio Aves. Hey, Claudio. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Yes. Um, <laughs> After I basically forced you to pick me for this episode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely you surveyed the rest of the years after our 2001 episode i'm like even before i get started in the 90s i'm like yep i'm gonna go with uh, fanny alexander I'm like okay he took that year already but you know i know you have your reasons why you really wanted this year and i'm so happy to have you back because this is this episode of the fan alexander 1983 this is officially the halfway point of this podcast because um 73 divided by two <laughs> this is gonna be like 36.5 so this is the 37th episode and after this we're halfway halfway done this podcast <gasps> oh my gosh anyway so i'm so happy to have you on this episode um can you tell the listeners where can they find you on the internet? Um, you can find my work at all those sites you mentioned. Um, the Film Experience, Magazine HD, Photogenie. You can also find me on Twitter at ClaudioAlvesDC and on Letterboxd too, under that name. All right. So. So. Um... Really adamant on getting this year, getting this film to review. Um, this is the moment. 
I want to know why. Um, why? Oh, okay. Yeah, just a um, second. Yeah. So, um, you said this is one of your favorite films, but um, I want to know now, like, what has anything changed on this rewatch of the film that you did? Because I know you rewatched it um, twice. On December. <laughs> well, I rewatched it on December for a piece I wrote for Photogenie. And then I rewatched it again. Now I watched most of the TV cut and the theatrical version. So in the past 48 hours, I've watched eight and a half hours of Sonia and Alexander. Oh, my... My opinion is the same. I love it. Like, I I love it so much. I was so emotional while watching it. I started crying during the fart scene. It's just like the stupidest moment to start crying at. But I just love it so much. You know, sometimes there are films that make me happy that that I'm alive to watch them that film exists, that, that, you know, that sort of restore my faith in humanity for a couple of hours, and Sonia and Alexander is one of them. I, I just love it so much. And Ingmar Bergman is probably my favorite filmmaker, if I am completely honest with myself and others. Um, and this is his warmest film. And in the realm of his filmography, it's almost a catharsis. So, and one of the, the, main, the main reason I asked to do this episode is that all things considered, this is my favorite best foreign language film winner of all time. Wow. Like, like it might not be the one I consider the best, but it's my favorite. Okay. That's a very strong. And now you're going to yeah. say you hate it. <laughs> no, and no, I'm no. I'm not going to say I hate it. No. Um... All right, so you're coming from that. You know, it's one of your favorite. Is it your favorite film ever or like one of your favorites? Oh, not ever, but it's in the top 100 for sure. Yeah. It's one of your favorite films and you have this long-standing relationship with this film. This is my first time to watch this film and I I would admit I was really scared going into this film. Um, uh, interestingly, least of all because of the runtime. Not really. Um, because in the realm of like world cinema, uh, Ingmar Bergman is like, you know, in the canon of like one of the greats. And I've only seen like one film of him before and that's Autumn Sonata. And I've seen it for Ingrid Bergman of like best actress fandom. <laughs> so, uh, this is like my first way into a, f um, this is my first film where like Ingmar Bergman really is my way in you know with this having won the Oscar and um you know with such with such a rich history backing this film up like one of the greatest films ever uh it's really intimidating because there's always it's it's hard because you know doing this podcast there are some films like oh no the Wikipedia page almost has nothing so like great I'm coming in almost like blindly like yes you know I have my first impressions but it's impossible to watch Fanny Alexander but like, I have a clean slate. No, no, no. You, I know in the <laughs> back of my head, like, people really revere this film. And I do. I think it's a tremendous piece of filmmaking. It's 
you know, there are just some of those films that when you watch it, you just know it's fully realized. Like, every part of it feels so well thought of. And um, it's, it's almost like thrilling to see like when when you see a film because and I you know I don't know um especially when watching like independent films there are some moments when I feel like oh you know sometimes there are a few like flaws or like slips or like you know, you know whatever this one everything just feels so decided so well thought out so complete that when I'm watching it I'm I'm in for the ride and it's almost Anyway, more feelings later. So, <laughs> I had some feelings about this film later. So, yeah. <laughs> what made you fall in love with this film? Oh, where to start? Um, well, this wasn't one of my first Bergman's. Like, it's, it's for you. So, the first time I came into this film many years ago, it was already with some knowledge of Ingmar Bergman's cinema. And later on, revisiting it, I also, with knowledge on Bergman's life. So the film almost feels like a catharsis to those previous works. I think this film is very warm. I know that might feel odd to say, um, but it's, some people have described this film as like, a director trying to put the the sprawl of humanity and um, and the possibilities of art, especially performing arts, and encapsulate them all in one film. And in some ways, I agree. I think Bergman succeeds in doing that. Um, to to summarize why I love it, it's very difficult because again, it's just so overwhelming. Like I was watching it again, and I was just overwhelmed. Even if I watched it so many times before, I have some moments memorized. Um, there is there is this love of life in the film that exists even with an undercurrent of darkness. In in some ways, the trajectory of Bergman's filmography is one of reckoning with the world, with God, with humanity. In the 60s, yes, so many films that um, question the existence of God that you will discover once you go back to Through a Glass Darkly, this very famous idea of his that either God doesn't exist or God is a stony-faced spider with long arms through which it wrecks chaos. This cruel image. And I don't think he necessarily mellows throughout his career, but when he gets to Fanny Alexander, it's like he has make, made peace with the essential loneliness of being a person. But as a side of to look at it in a positive light, we're all alone. 
but the connections we make with each other are so magical that it should be celebrated. And Sonny Alexander, above all else, reminds me of that. So it's a really life-affirming film for me. The generosity that extends to every character, especially the TV version, which is two hours longer. So it really delves into that family. And it does this without denying the darkest parts of humanity, which I sometimes find that very happy-go-lucky films feel dishonest because they are so sunny. And Sunny Alexander is not that. It's very dark at some points. And because of that, it's, its general warmth and its generosity shine all the brightest. And again, as you say, it's such a, a perfectly constructed piece of cinema. It's really amazing how every thing works together, fits together so well to create this final masterpiece from the sets, which are gigantic. So you can have a camera in one room and look down on five other rooms. And it's, the cinematography is absolutely beautiful. It's maybe not as aesthetically challenging as other collaborations between Bergman and Sven Nyqvist, but it's so pretty to look at. I, I'm reminded, for example, of, of a shot later on the, this, the Christmas sequence that opens the film after the children have gone to bed and the adults are in one room, but the camera is on another room that, where the lights are off. So we are looking through this proscenium into this other, into this family tableau. And because it's so late, the smoke from candles and cigars has floated up. So there's like a vaulted ceiling of smoke and light above the people. And it's, it's such a beautiful image. It encapsulates an entire night of celebration in one image. It feels lived in, it feels precise. It's beautiful to look at. I, I remember years ago, it was my, I, I, when I was in college, every Christmas I put a, a screenshot Christmas theme during the holiday season on my Facebook. And that one was usually the one I chose that beautiful image, but it's also haunting and melancholic because Fanny Alexander, especially the theatrical version, often feels like memories. And, and that image feels like this little snapshot a person may remember, maybe out of context, but which is imbued with such feeling that you can remember all the sensations of a night spent with family and booze and revelry and you're tired and sweaty in your velvety clothes, but you're so content. I love it. It's, it's such a good film. It makes me emotional. Um, there are so many things I want to discuss with you. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. Like, I, I went to college for theater, and this film is positively in love with theater, so there's another thing. And, and the TV version, well, which is sort of the complete version, because Bergman's always said this was a five-and-a-half-hour film split in two parts um, and an epilogue, which... Yeah, and I think when, even when watching the theatrical cut, you can feel the separation of episodes. 
there are some parts, oh. yeah, when I feel it. Uh, oh, okay. I think this is where, okay, this is another episode. I'm feeling it right yeah. now. Do you want, uh, can I say, this? I'll, it sort of stands out. Because the first episode is basically the Christmas night. It's a hour, it's an hour and a half, just the Christmas night and then Christmas day. Um, the second episode starts in the theater, in the rehearsals for Hamlet, when finally Alexander's father dies. And again, it's playing uh, uh, the ghost of Hamlet's father, and then he becomes a ghost for Alexander. And it spans his death, the funeral march, which again is one of those amazing moments when Alexander is trying not to cry and trying to cheer up his sister. So he's saying profanities while they march behind the coffin. And it's, it's such a beautiful, well-observed moment. Um, and it spans that and the wedding to the bishop. And it finishes on, on that day when they arrive at the bishop's house. Then and that's the second episode. Then the third episode is basically that summer. It's that intercut between life at the bishop's house, that miserable existence, and the and the rest of the, and the rest of the Ekdal family on their summer home. And I, to be frank, I think that's the the part that where you where there's where you feel in comparing the two versions where you feel like the most things were cut off because there is a lot that was cut off from that part, mostly more ghosts. Like the ghosts of the of the bishop's previous family appear in the TV version. And they say and they tell Alexander that he, that they didn't die as he described in that story. Um and it basically and with this beautiful image that's used, I'm not sure if it's used on the on the Criterion cover, but it's used on the Portuguese edition of the of the film. And it's an image that I don't think is in the theatrical version, which is the after the mother returns from secretly seeing her mother-in-law. She lays in bed with Alexandra and Fanny, and you kind of see them all almost staring at the camera reckoning with the prison they've all gotten themselves into and that's the end of episode three and then episode four which is the last episode sort of um is the rest of the film it, it basically starts with with um with Isaac the grandmother's Jewish lover played by Erlen Josephson, coming into the house and through this um, schemes, he gets the children out and through a miracle at some point, because there's a moment of magic as it is in the theatrical version where suddenly what's happening, the children multiply and it's, it is that sort of miraculous incident that's never explained and you don't need to, in my mind. Um, and the fourth episode basically ends with after the bishop's death, 
um, and the family is reunited, you get a scene of Emily, the children's mother, returning to the theater. You don't get to see that in the, the theatrical cut. There, if there is one thing that the TV version has more, is a much bigger emphasis on theater. And the last portion of the film, that spring sequence, with where literally new life has brought forth the spring um, and the dual birth, uh, these two babies being christened, and that's an epilogue. It's, it's even, you have a title card saying it's an epilogue. Uh, and the and both film and play and oh, and TV miniseries though the the TV miniseries does this extend the scene a little bit and with the grandmother reading a part of Strindberg's a dream play to Alexander and it's a beautiful quote and the dream play meant a lot to Bergman and a lot to the actress that plays the grandmother. This was her only film with Bergman, Gunn but they had worked a lot in theater, including staging a dream play. And that, can I just read the quote which ends the film, and which I think sort of gives you the, the essential theme that sort of defines the film? It's, Everything can happen. Everything is possible and probable. Time and space do not exist. On a flimsy framework of reality, the imagination spins, weaving new patterns. And it's such a beautiful place to end the film. And also, in some ways, end Bergman's career. This was not his last film, but he sort of created it as his last film. And he always said it was his last film, lying through his teeth. <laughs> but it feels like the last film. And that moment from a play he staged countless times, that meant so much to him. Um, it, it feels like a fitting ending for his career, even if it's not, because he would work for almost 30 years after. <laughs> um, yeah, because I think this film, apart from, you know, the sprawl of humanity all condensed in a film, it's a film about theater and storytelling and the power of cinema. Alexander doesn't get a lot of characterization apart from the fact he loves to tell stories. And the family at the center of the film is a family that owns a theater in Uppsala, which was a city where Ingmar Bergman lived and where he learned to love theater and, and cinema. And this film is basically Bergman's love letter to, to cinema and to theater and to the art of storytelling. And I might go into, if you allow me, I, I may go into more detail how this film is so autobiographical in some very twisted ways even. You don't know a lot about Bergman's personal life, do you? No, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> so it's interesting that Bergman structures this film around two father figures, this actor 
and stage director who instills his children with a love for storytelling and fun. And I have to say, um, the scene that hurts me the most that it was left off the the theatrical cut. There are many scenes I think are amazing, like a monologue from the grandmother of the last great scene of one of Bergman's great collaborators, Gunnar Björnstrand. This is his last film. He was he was suffering from Alzheimer's, so this was his last big role and the film is almost dedicated to him in a way but anyway the moment i most feel like it should have been left is when the children's father enters the room after they have been playing with the magic lantern which is that projector thing and he weaves this fantastic tale using only a chair and you really see why the children love storytelling and you really feel the love that Bergman himself feels for the power of the storytelling, for how we can bend reality and we can create new realities. And this can be both amazing and terrifying. You have this father figure, this king of imagination that dies so tragically. And then you have the bishop this evil stepfather, this religious man who's in, whose house looks like a prison, who is so strict, but not inhuman. I, I think that's quite a commendable thing, that he still feels like a person. He doesn't feel like a monster, both because of how Bergman shoots him and, for, and because of the performance by Jan Monsko. But the interesting thing is that Bergman's father was like the bishop. Bergman's father was a clergyman. And a lot of Bergman's career is reckoning with his relationship with his father, his very difficult relationship with this religious figure. And it's interesting that in this film, Bergman creates through storytelling the father he wanted to have had and sort of kills his father, his real father, in a horrible fire. It's twisted. At the same time, it's almost cathartic. You're seeing, to me, you're seeing this man look back at his life and sort of rewriting it, not in a cynical way, but maybe trying to create the joy he wishes he had felt. Like, I find it interesting that in the in this film, the children do get the magic lantern. In real life, Bergman didn't get that magic lantern. He traded it for... He, he used his tin soldiers as, as coin to trade the magic lantern with another kid so he could have it. And he describes it in his memoir which saw the magic lantern how how that little object sort of opened him up to the potential of the projected image and of storytelling there's so many details once you get to know a little bit more of, of Bergman's life that both become clearer and at the same time more mysterious about finding Alexander like the house of the grandmother is inspired by the house of Bergman's grandmother in Uppsala. 
but which was sort of the house divided into two apartments and Bergman and his family lived in one apartment his grandmother lived in another and he sort of replicates that in this film but uh, he makes it so rich so beautiful he sort of reinvents this very unhappy childhood he had he reinvents it into this warm paradise and maybe when maybe what he was feeling during his childhood was more akin to the bishop's prison-like home. I also find it interesting how, because Alexander is basically Bergman. In his next film, because again, this was not his last film, um, after the rehearsal, that little kid appears again, Alexander appears again, looking on a rehearsal. And it's very, self-consciously Bergman putting his childhood self into the film. So Alexander, Bertil Guva's Alexander, he really represents the young Bergman. And I found it fascinating how he is the storyteller and he sort of represents the, the great storyteller, the archetype of the storyteller, while Fanny represents the audience, the observer. She doesn't get a lot of development, but she is this constant observer. She often feels like the most perceptive person in the room. And, she, and her function in the film is a lot of times just being there to listen to Alexander's stories. And it's, it's kind of heartwarming to see Bergman portray this close relationship between brother and sister when he should read his memoir. He had a very, the start of his relationship with his sister was very um difficult but he describes how he he and his brother hated each other until the birth of their sister because then they got united in their hatred of their sister and in their plans to kill their sister <laughs> he was an asshole um so to see this close relationship between siblings it's again it's sort of these memories that are that are transformed through cinema, through storytelling into something beautiful. And that's also the part of cinema is that he is revisiting his memories and he's making them beautiful and he's making them happy. And that is powerful, both for him and for an audience, for me. And again, it's that thing where even if you, you you, you face the darkness of life head on, but you still, in the end, find beauty in it somehow. And cinema, for me, has been a lot, like, I've suffered through depression, I've battled it a lot, and I'm going to be candid. There were times when I thought about killing myself, and this sounds incredibly stupid, but one of the, I remember saying to myself, I don't want to die because there are still so many films I want to watch. Because even when things are horrible, you know, this was a constant place of joy for me. And the film in some way reflects that relationship I have with cinema by crystallizing Bergman's relationship with cinema. And watching it is like being in dialogue with another cinephile. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to discuss this film with you because since the last podcast, I think you've become a great friend of mine. 
and a fellow cinephile. And, you know, one loves to share the things they love with the person, with the people they love. And this film especially, which feels so much like a conversation between the audience and the storyteller, between cinephiles, I thought it was so appropriate to discuss with you, another cinephile I love. And I'm being super sincere, but you know, this film sort of brings a sentimental in me. <laughs> as as this is Bergman, this is by far his most sentimental film, even if someone as more than one people burns alive during it. I'm sorry if I'm talking too much. I just I love this film. It it's almost embarrassing. And that's Fanny Alexander. Thank you so much. <laughs> 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 I just love like almost like you almost had this moment of just like sharing about this film and also sharing yourself and for like 20 minutes and I'm like should I go because this is very intimate you know the way you have this relationship with this film is very intimate it's very personal it's um it's really magical and I, I agree I agree with what you said you know with um film it's really a way to process things in life, you know, not just us as moviegoers, you know. We we kind of see versions of life and then we hopefully we can become better versions of ourselves when we try to see these stories. It's almost also the filmmaker reconciling contradictions and traumas and things that needs to be settled and hopefully like in a way putting a version of a life because, you know, um I'm 25 years old. I cannot go back and, you know, redo things. I know I've just made a few mistakes recently. And, uh, you know, it, you don't have control over that. That's done. But what you can do is put on another version of life in celluloid or digital, whatever. And then hopefully put yourself in it. But now you are the master. You are the one in control. You can... Um, in the way you tell your story, you can forgive or indict or reconcile or, uh, you know, that's the power of film. I, I don't know how to freaking follow you on that thing. You, just, you went on a 20 minute monologue and I'm like, I'm never going to have to have a good thing to say about this film. Like, it's good. <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's fun. <laughs> This is one of those moments when I don't have the word to say, but uh, <laughs> like anything that I would say would just like it's gonna go downhill from there. Um, it's also I think it's fascinating to hear your perspective because again I've had this relationship, this very complex relationship over the years with this film. This is the first time you watched it, so you know. Yeah, and I'm just getting to know this person. Yeah. I'm just getting to know this film and um, it's really interesting that you kept on mentioning how warm the feel, uh, how warm the feel, how warm the film is. Um, I would not go use the word warm, but I would say it feels very intimate, feels very personal. Um, I'm only coming off of watching the theatrical version, I f but with what I've seen, and this is the version that was nominated at the Oscars, and like, I'm cool. Um, <laughs> I feel like 
there was room for every character to breathe and yeah. just be alive and be more than one thing. Um, you don't just get a long-suffering mother. You don't just get these uh, curious kids. You don't just get this grandmother, You know, this abusive father. I think even the smallest characters, like, for example, the maid in the new house or, like, the sister of the bishop or, like, the the aunt there that's living, the obese aunt that's living with them, or, like, the old friend of the grandmother. For some reason, I think the film found this really good balance of giving every character the life so that you once, once you experience the film, you feel as if they are very close to reality, these characters that populate the film. And I usually sometimes say with some films, but like, oh, sometimes, you know, when I watch this film, oh, uh, I think the film kind of lagged because it stayed too much in this character and it didn't really serve any purpose. And like, it's, it's, it's not, it's killing the momentum with this one. I think the momentum is really to stay and to stay on the characters and just, be with these characters that's why even if like you know a character like the grandmother like you know i was following the kids you know i was expecting i'm gonna follow fanny and alexander because it's fanny and alexander <laughs> but when i went when i'm with a grandmother and she starts telling this story to um her old friend i'm like you know what there's a story here and i don't think that's a story i could isolate i think it's a story that comes together with the story of the kid, with the story of the mother, with the story of the bishop, with the story of the, um, the person that's like, uh, I, I, the, is it the old friend that uh, bought the, 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 the chest? And, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's also the chapter of like, Alexander with this person. I want to talk about that. <laughs> all right, all right, let's go, let's go. Okay. Um... <laughs> What did you think of that scene? Because to me, that scene sort of represents the. There is this beautiful um, side to storytelling, but there's also this terrifying power you have to create reality, to create a reality that's built out of nothing and can be more real than reality itself. And you start, like nowadays, it's a really good uh, time to ponder this when you look at the news and look at people believing stories over facts um is it the uh, scene with ishmael i'm talking about the scene with ishmael <laughs> when alexander is basically imagining what he wants to happen to the bishop and it happens oh is it the one when uh, that uh, so it's it's a it's a man right okay the character is a man it's played by an actress all right I, I'm glad I uh, brought that up <laughs> because I was also confused and I'm like, um, which adds another layer to that character. I think there's this, um, I don't know, I, I'm doing these things and I don't know what to say. Uh, anyway, um, I don't know where I was going. Well, and that character is sort of the dark <laughs> side of the storyteller. Yeah. And it's a mirror image because... You know, Alexander signs his name, but it appears as Ishmael's name. Is this in the film theatrical version? 
This is in the theatrical version. Oh like, my Ishmael asks, asks him to, to write down his name, and then he asks Alexander to read what he wrote, and he, 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 instead of writing Alexander, he wrote Ishmael. This is in the theatrical version. I made sure of it. <laughs> I took notes. I'm I, didn't want to confuse, I didn't want to confuse the two versions. Um, this scene is almost exactly the same in both versions, by the way. Um, I think it may be the same. Uh, it is so scary in some regards. It is so disturbing. And Bergman was very concerned about shooting this scene because it has some sexual over- overtones to it. It does. And he was concerned for the sake of the child actor and he really talked things over with him. And Bergman loved actors. He loved to direct actors. And in this film, he was very concerned with the child actors. And like, if you see documents finding Alexander, which is sort of making off, not really making off, it's more like a, a behind the scenes look. You see Bergman really going at it with his child actors and like there is a scene where he's staging a pillow fight. You know the pillow fight at yeah. the end of the sequence, and and Bergman got in with the kids to to really have them have the energy. But he was very concerned about this scene, and I sort of feel like that fear of you know not wanting to traumatize his kids uh, sort of passes through. It's it feels very disturbing the entire sequence, but again, I think it needs to be there because storytelling is this amazing thing, but it's also dangerous. And again, Bergman is killing his father in a horribly violent way, metaphorically, through this film. And so he sort of makes the bishop's death almost come through storytelling, both metatextually, because Bergman is the one writing it, and within the film, because Alexander is the one imagining it, and it's happening. Like, you don't... This film is magical realism. You don't... Because you, you have a miracle happening when the children multiply during the escape sequence, and you have this moment. When Alexander's imagination basically brings death to these people he hates. And it's a frightening moment. And this is only the TV version. The ghost of the bishop appears in the TV version. Right before the end, right before Alexander is like, when his grandmother starts reading part of a dream play to him, almost like willing him to sleep, the bishop appears. He doesn't appear in the theatrical version. And I think that's, that's correct. Because again, the TV version is much more filled with ghosts. So there is a tonal continuity to it. But the bishop appears in the TV version and he knocks Alexander over and he basically implies he'll always be there. Which again, Bergman can kill his father in fiction if he wants, but his father and the trauma will always be, will always swallow him everywhere. And again, I think you need to acknowledge that darkness if you want the, the light to feel earned, if you, want, if you want to spring that beautiful christening seem to feel earned, you need to acknowledge the darkness. And storytelling is beautiful, but it's also dangerous. And it can also be cruel. I think Bergman is cruel in the way he immortalized the image of his father in his films. I don't think it's totally unwarranted considering all the things that happened to him. But I think it's self-aware of him to acknowledge that. 
in the character of Alexander and in that horrifying moment with Ishmael. Because it's scary. And I think that's such a strong performance by the actress playing Ishmael. I would nominate her for an Oscar. <laughs> uh, this film is full of great performance. Like Gunwald as the grandmother too, but anyway. Um, so yeah, to me that scene represents the 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 um, both the very immaterial membrane that separates reality from fiction, and that separates fantasy from the world, the material from the spiritual. But it also represents the mirror image of storytelling and the dark side it can have. That's what it means to me. But I think it's open enough that other people get other interpretations. Like, I was curious about what you thought of it. What was your interpretation of that scene? Or at least how did it make you feel? Because to me, it unnerves me a lot. Ishmael scene. Yeah. It made me very uncomfortable, but I didn't necessarily know why. And I think it is true to many of the feelings that I got in the film is that um, I think the film um, has a lot of moments with characters, um, you know, very open, very honest, uh, you know, almost like burying themselves. But the thing with the film, they just have a very low voice. <laughs> um, but I think the film almost feels like it's very open, but you still don't know everything. It's mysterious. Yeah. There's this, um, I don't know if it's intentionally being cryptic, but um, I think, of course, you know, when, when you talk about not knowing everything, and even even something like Alexander, because Fanny, we were like, well, I don't know everything that she does, because she's a more of an observing character, but with Alexander, even I don't know everything that's going on in his mind, but and then they also have this layer of the fantasy. It's like, you know, there was there was a moment, and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to surrender and not try to understand everything because I feel like this is such a very specific um, way of showing these characters in this kind of story, in this kind of storytelling. It's very specific. It has its own rules, and um, it's not one thing. You know, and I don't think the film is dictating you what to feel. I mean, it has very minimum music, right? Or or totally no score. Very minimum. No, it has score. Very it has minimum. Score. Yeah. But for the majority of the film, it's not dictating you what to feel. So, like, there are moments where, like, for example, when, when Alexander is with Ishmael, I'm like, I did not even get to write that scene in my notes, but just, like, I did not know what to feel. Um, I felt the sexual... Uh, overtone, uh, under, uh, overtone, and I'm like, is this gonna go? And then it's becoming more deeper, but it's still this thing of like, are you, are are you happy for that person because that person gets to, um, you know, be true to that himself, or or are we seeing something that we should not see, or like it's a lot of things that causes you to not settle with just one feeling. And I think mm -hmm. Fanny Alexander does it very well because this almost feels like it doesn't feel like a child child 
a child sorry, a child telling his story. It feels like a person looking back in the memory. That's why there's this um you know, even going to the Christmas scene, you know, I'm getting to my notes. I'm so happy. Um, um that in the Christmas scene, it the, the Christmas chapter feels very different than most Christmas scenes that I've seen because there is this even there's a child and there are Christmas songs and there's just the bright red colors and there's there is this somberness to how the affair unfolds. So we almost kind of get to see the behind the scenes of a Christmas event. So it's like this feels very different than most films that I've seen seen through the lens of a child because there is a maturity in how we see it and the the fascination that the character of Alexander has is darker. It's not just this childish imagination that he has. The fascination that he has around is more uh, I don't know darker, deeper, more complex than just that. Or if you disagree with me, feel free. I was, I was just going to say that I think children are dark more than we give them credit for uh, as adults. And, uh, like, I, I can identify <laughs> with some of the morbid curiosity of Alexander. Um, but you said something that really resonates with me is that this film feels like someone remembering their childhood um, which in, in some ways it is for Bergman so a fantasy version of his childhood but it reminds me of what I think is the main tonal difference between the theatrical and the TV cut because I think despite, I think they're both perfect but they're different in their tone to me the film the theatrical version even if it's even by Bergman's assessment, sort of the incomplete version, feels like a memory, like a memory play. The the TV cut to me feels more like something in the present, like you are seeing this story unfold through the eyes of Alexander. The subjectivity is there at both times, but the TV version to me feels more like we are seeing this kid experience things and we are seeing the world through his perspective in the moment, while the the theatrical cut really feels more like a memory, like this recollection of a child remembering his family, remembering his, his youth. And I, th- I think it, it's interesting that, that we kind of both got that, that register from the film, especially the Christmas sequence. The Christmas sequence feels so much like someone remembering this bittersweet memory. And, and the tonal balance is so really complex. Even that pillow fight scene, when when the mothers of the children arrive and and Alexander's aunt slaps the maid, and it, it's 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 what happened. And like and then you realize because she knows that her husband wants to sleep with the maid, and she allows it. It's almost as like she still wants to keep the distance between between them because she's still a maid and she's a lady of the house. And it's such a complex thing that's crystallized and it's very atonal, this violent moment that seems like I'm out of nowhere until you start thinking back to it. 
And it's felt like one of the things like when you witness as a child and it leaves an impression, but you don't really know what it means. And then years back when you remember, oh, you suddenly see all the complexities were there that you didn't understand because you weren't seeing things from the adult perspective. It feels really like a, a memory, like a memory play. So it's such a rich film. I can talk about the details of this one forever. Like, I love the fart scene. <laughs> I think it's so, like, everybody talks about very one being the serious filmmaker, but he still loves fart jokes. <laughs> when Carl, the, the uncle that hates his German wife, hates sort of, um, uh, he goes to the kids' nursery and, and he's, and he's, making a show out of farting and lighting his farts on fire oh yeah like, that is ridiculous it, 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 and, and it's so fascinating because you see that him with the kids and then you see him with his wife and you get these two opposing versions of the same man and it's fascinating it's I'm sorry, so fascinating I have a question can it really be done I don't know. I never tried. You can try if you want. I'm not doing that. I, I'm a, I think I will fart in a, in a second. Um, anyway. <laughs> I don't have a match, though. So, anyway. Um... <laughs> so... I don't know. Maybe it can. Maybe it's not visual effects. Maybe it's really that's happening. There's only one way to know. <laughs> I'll try it. <laughs> Good for you. Possible yeah. only plans or something. <laughs> It's not the you know if it if it if it if it would hurt me it's not the worst hurt I've felt anyway. Um, let's not go. There. Let's not go there because I'm moving on. Um, let's talk about other toxic relationships. Yeah, let's, let's talk, talk about, about other trauma. Business. Yes, other people's trauma, not mine. Um, <laughs> I I have to say this um, because we're gonna get to it later, but I love the contrast of the of course you know these were like four slash five episodes but in the film it almost feels like a half half because the first half uh, or maybe just time blurred in my mind but before the bishop no, came in but, after yeah but that makes sense because bergman said this this was not even a uh, this he said this was a five and a half hour film in two parts there you go because so. he yet to cut it into four episodes because of the TV airing, but he didn't want to. He wanted it to be in two parts. So you're you're into Bergman's wavelength when you say that. <laughs> We're in the same wavelength, Bergman and I. Thank you. Uh, so I I really appreciated on the first half of the film because you know it's the Christmas scene and before the death even. It's so beautiful, but it's almost kind of suffocating at times as well. And there's something something bothering me with the beauty of it. And and there's also the cinematography. You know, of course, we can talk about colors. But I also just want to highlight the, how the film um, goes into varying shot sizes. Uh, and how that shot sizes dictate mood in a film. Like, for example, the pillow fight is almost like um, wide shot. And then there are, like, conversations. You're exploding right now. <laughs> anyway, and it's conversation of, like, uh, with the, the grandmother and the old friend, which is very close. I'm like, okay, I'm... I, it's a power... It's a, it's a testament to how, like, how shot sizes can dictate 
how we perceive a scene. And it's not just like one thing, oh, let's just do coverage and cut to this, cut to that. This is very specific framing, very specific lensing, very specific pacing. And I got that vibe, baby. Like I said, Bergman and I are the same wavelength. Like, you were saying that there is no score dictating the mood, but I'd argue the images and the cutting especially dictate the mood in a very powerful way. And the use of varying shot sizes is masterful in this film. Like, it's not as radical as other Bergman films because he really doesn't go into the the claustrophobic close-ups that he does in other films. Again, this was sort of his attempt to be more accessible, which he was criticized for at the time. There were some American critics who said it was a very poor attempt at, at Bergman appealing to the masses, which I think is stupid, but whatever. Um, this is Bergman appealing to the masses? This is Bergman appealing to... You don't know what you're in for, baby. All right. <laughs> when All you right. get... You have rape. You have God as a spider. Suicide. You have so much to look for. See you in the next two seasons. Oh, three seasons because we also get to see the Seven Seal. All right. Bergman in the next three seasons. Love it. The Seven Seal is a masterpiece. And it's a comedy. I will say that to my grave when people will call me crazy. Anyway. Uh, but yeah, the, the user varying shot size is brilliant, especially at defining mood and the way you perceive space. Like the wedding scene between the mother and the bishop. And like you don't see the bishop's face almost in that wedding scene. And that tells you everything about this man that is completely emotionally closed off. It tells you everything you need to know. And the only person you linger on is Alexander after seeing the... And Alexander's look at his father's ghost in the distance. And you are in these close-ups and then you, you get this wide shot of, of the ghost sort of haunting the place. And it's perfect. It, 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 it's tell, it, it's mood through and it's, it's visual storytelling at its best and it's doing it only through composition and the difference between shot sizes and the the shock you get from going from a close-up to a wide shot and from showing an actor's face or not showing an actor's face. And it's masterful. It's perfect cinema. And it's a sort of formal sophistication I sometimes yearn for in more realistic-minded cinema, I have to say. Especially European cinema. <laughs> like, I am not. I'm not a fan of, of what the Dardenne brothers have wrought on this world. Uh, I am. I, uh, and I like some of their films. I just don't like what their influence has done to European cinema. <laughs> um, it's not their fault. <laughs> well, sure. Uh, <laughs> but like. For a director that was so famous for his work with actors, and who in many ways considered himself, first and foremost, a stage director of actors, before he even considered himself a film director, it's amazing how astute he is in the ways of visual storytelling through the frame, and through cutting, and through just a contrast between one image and the next. And they can be two close-ups, and they have two completely different energies just from the distance the camera is from the actor. It's amazing. I love it. He should have won Best Director. Give my daughter a shot! Anyway. 
Um, fuck Terms of Endearment. Fuck it. I, I like it, but... <laughs> oh, I, you should cut this off. This is going to be controversial. Don't put that I in. won't cut it. <laughs> I'm going to be cancelled or something. This is even going to be the video I love, we posted. I love you, Shirley McLean. I'm sorry. Anyway... Um, why I highlighted, going back to my own thoughts, <laughs> anyway, just a second, um, why I highlighted that first half where it's all beautiful, like, it's almost too beautiful and it's very filled with something because when we go to the house of the bishop, it's almost very bare, it's almost lifeless, and there's this emptiness that you feel, oh, I, oh you're exploding again, uh, anyway, let, I'll, I'll finish my thought, it's just very vivid and it's very... Uh, dark you know it's it doesn't always even go to like very strong like dark contrasts in terms of like colors and shadows but the way it just sinks emotionally and it's manifesting without the tradition like oh let's go dark then literally let's go like hi um pussy uh, catty uh, i'm sorry maggie maggie the cat maggie I forgot how to greet cats in Portuguese. I'm sorry. Uh, so uh, that's a very a strong contrast that I found in the first and the second half of the film. And yeah. the second half of the film where we get to discuss like... Anyway, you were exploding a while ago. The floor is yours. No, it's just a little joke. Because um, again, I say this is a very typical song for Bergman. And even Bergman knew that. Uh, when they were doing the sets... Because all of this film is sets. Most of, well, not all, but most of it is sets. All those houses are gigantic sets, all interconnected. And when they got to the bishop's house, he said, ah, now we're doing a normal Bergman film. Because <laughs> it is all naked and it's all white walls and it's all miserable. <laughs> I, I like a director that is that is self-aware enough to make a joke about himself. <laughs> but you're right. Like, in that you're describing the contrast, it's like the film is suddenly drained of color. It is so lustful. Like, you... This film probably has all shades of red that exist in the world. And then suddenly you go to these horrible white walls. And, you know, just... At an aesthetic level, as an audience member, even if you don't think about this sort of thing, like it, it affects your mood. Yeah. How you go from these images that are stuffed with detail, there are so many things crammed into that house in, on Christmas. And then I you go to that. this complete <laughs> void where there is nothing. Yeah. Like there, that crucifix in the attic. There's a fallen crucifix. Um, oh, a piece of decor. <laughs> How jolly this fallen crucifix! At least it's something to look at. I'll just also mention that um, you know when I had my production design class in film school. Um, one of the things that we had to watch are clips of not Fanny Alexander, but in terms of like how color can be used. Um, unsurprisingly, um, our professor, um, 
went with cries and whispers because of just the power of how like how can you cram the 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 space and how you use space and then how you use um sets and how you take away color and everything and just like the volume of like what you see because when you go to the house of the family the beginning there's so many layers and the way it was captured like um room and then you see another room and you see another room and then there's like it's full of things and then when you go to this uh, house of the bishop like okay um we are now gonna talk about like mortality and um abuse of power by this priest and it was like perfect life is drained family life is gone this is there's almost this nothingness that is also manifested in fanny alexander and, and emily you know when they went there um yeah so that bishop um, you went there a while ago. You already discussed it, so I have nothing else to add. But I just find it really interesting that, um, you know, and also in conjunction to what you shared about uh, Bergman's father being um, a, a bishop himself and how he was abusive, right? He was abusive. Well, at the time, it probably wasn't considered abusive. Yeah, it's just being a father. <laughs> um, he was very strict, and yeah. he made his family follow the very archaic religious rule and you know like Bergman was a a theater kid <laughs> so growing up in that environment wasn't easy and like yeah his father did something like taking him to a morgue and things like that which, which, which were not the nicest things to do I guess you would consider it abusive nowadays but uh, at the time it was socially acceptable but it really fucked Berman up real good for the rest of his life. Yeah, even but even me and my mom, we, we are religious. I'm like, well, what the fuck is happening here? Like, my mom is religious. Like, why is he doing that? And, you know, we, we me, especially my mom, you know, they grew up in the corporal punishment parenting style of the earlier days. And this is still too much for her. Like, what is happening? Why is there no mercy here? And... There is this um, sternness in how the bishop implements rules and authority and uh, quote unquote love to his children now. And he sees it as love, which is both humanizing and terrifying. Yeah, it is. And also, like in the layer of, like, you know, um, in film showing a lot of like theater, I think each and every one of these characters are. You know, when we see them like stripped bare of like emotions and you, we just see them for who they are. But there are also like performances done to one another. Like, you know, with the pleasantries that they have and, you know, and then suddenly the f and slowly the film uh, unravels and see, we see like, oh, it, you know, there is so much performance and we get to see the characters for who they truly are and what's happening to them truly. Uh... Yeah, <laughs> I'm. Uh, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> well, and with the bishop, there's also the fact that he just doesn't understand storytelling. Yeah, which is again, it's Bergman, really. You know, really criticizing his father and the way his father was never able to understand him, um, because 
that story Alexander tells in school of being sold to the circus, etc. Like, if Alexander likes to tell stories, his family doesn't take it seriously. Because like his father, he's a storyteller. He likes to put on a show. He likes to entertain his younger sister, which is something that I think is lovable about him. And like, like a lot of times you see him sort of trying to shield her through his storytelling. When they're alone in their bedroom, when in the funeral march, etc. Storytelling is just a part of him and it's harmless and it's not a lie. Storytelling is, is telling a fake thing. It's not necessarily a lie. But for the bishop, it's a lie. He doesn't know the difference between the two. And it's an essential difference between the two parents, between the two father figures. One values storytelling for what it is. The other scorns it because to them, it's a form of dishonesty. While to Bergmanat argues storytelling is like a ultimate form of honesty because you can explore your innermost thoughts and feelings through it. But the bishop is simply incapable of seeing that. And that's why he calls Alexander a liar. And, you know, and in the scene where he whips him with that stick, you know, he just doesn't understand. And you both feel suffocated too, because of course you're on Alexander's side, you kind of see him suffering. And it, it is so sad seeing him cave so quickly to the pain, but it's so honest with how a child works. Like, I imagine Hollywood would prolong that scene and show Alexander as, you know, valiantly resisting the corporal punishment, but no, Alexander's a little kid, he caves in. And it's sad for him, it's, you feel, but it's also in some ways tragic that this man, the bishop, is so closed off, so sad in his ways that he's incapable of seeing this other side of existence. For him, life, I wouldn't say it's a punishment, but it's sort of a mercy you are given and that you must penitently pay for with your suffering every day of your life. It, it's just such a, to me, I know people, other people don't feel it. I think it's such a horrible and dehumanizing way of existing so in some ways even as i hate him i i almost feel sorry for the bishop and that again that's the generosity of the film it's sort of it paints him as a monster but it sort of sees the the sadness in being a monster because his last scene with the mother He's not horrible. He is pitiful. As he begs her not to go. It is disturbingly human. Like, you get the sense that he's doing this to them because he thinks he's right. He thinks this is the path to salvation. Not because he's a... Well, he's cruel, but not because he knows he's being cruel and he revels in it. 
And that's just sad. Like, the way this man sees the world is just so sad. And both the performance of Yamamsio and Bergman's framing of him, I think are complex enough to show the two sides of him. Even, again, as it shows its, its monstrosity. And, you know. I say it's a warm film, but it has these dark moments. And the character of the bishop is very dark. It's like Bergman doesn't have villains in his films per se, but the bishop is sort of the closest thing he ever comes to in that regard. Yeah. And I'm sorry, what, what were we talking about? <laughs> uh, we were talking about um, the father and the bishop. Anyway, yeah, I think this film doesn't go for any cheap emotions. It doesn't go for any... Uh, easy way to just empathize with just one character and just neglect the rest. Um, doesn't go for um, cheap thrills. Like, yes, see uh, music now streaming. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it has speaking roles. So that is impressive. Yeah, it is. The fact um, that it can, you know, develop all of those 51 speaking roles. Yeah, it is. And yeah. Um, are there uh, you know we've talked about a lot of scenes and this film has a lot of three hours my version there's lots of scenes definitely Um, we've talked about a lot of them I just noted like in the very first time that uh, the bishop and Alexander were in a scene together and the way that scene is framed and that was already a setup for conflict between the two you know when he's talking about like lying in the school and like the camera is very static and we almost don't know what's going to happen next with it because the bishop we we didn't get to see a lot of his face you know when he's confronting alexander so there is we also have this anticipation like what is going on in his mind and um it just is a setup for like how um lifeless he probably is and you know as a character not not the character itself is lifeless that the cat you know what I mean. Um, His lifestyle. Yeah. Are there any other scenes that just stuck with you? Hopefully the one in the theatrical version. <laughs> yeah. I'm going... I think people should watch both versions. But yeah. We're, we're talking about theatrical here. Um, scene. There are so many. Um, I love the moment when the grandmother is with Isaac anticipating the arrival of her family and she looks out the window and sort of you see them arriving you see this chaos coming into the house i love that moment that that anticipation before the beginning of a party and the intimacy between the two friends slash possibly lovers oh lovers um it's it's beautiful i think gun Wagen gives an extraordinary performance another moment of hers that I think is just breathtaking is when she sees the ghost of her son and she talks to him almost this melancholic meditation on getting old 
and you know it's and it's a mother talking to either the memory the dream the ghost of her dead son like parents shouldn't talk with their children i think and there is that and just again when you know more about Berman etc it's he had worked so much with Gwen Valkan on theater this is the only film they did together and she died in 1983 so this was really her last project so to have her talk about mortality in that beautiful summary scene I say summer, I think it's raining during that scene, but it's in Sweden. Um, it just hits differently when you know what, you know, the actress a little bit more, you know, you know, this was her swan song. And she's brilliant in it. And it's so touching. It, it makes me cry. I think to be perfectly honest. It's so beautiful. That, that last moment of her reading a dream play I would nominate her for the Oscar too. Um, I would nominate this film almost everywhere. Sorry, other films. Um, the very cruel moment between Carl, Uncle Carl, and his German wife. It's sad seeing these, these people's relationship, but at the same time, you get that they're the most important people in the world to each other. Even as he's cruel to her, even as she takes it and reminds him that he's just being willfully cruel. And you can see their entire relationship in one scene. And even the, the set design, because you see the apartments of each of the three um, Ekdal brothers and like Fanny Alexander is in this Art Nouveau, very airy, beautiful, filigree place. Then you have that philandering <laughs> uncle, Uncle Gustav, uh, who was like a more lusty version of the grandmother's apartment, you know, all red and lace and drapery, etc. And then you have Uncle Carl, who lives in this brown world. Which again, just to inform, it tells you so much while saying so little. Speaking of Uncle Gustav, I love the moment when he's having sex with the maid and the bed breaks. It's so funny. And it's, it's like comes out of nowhere, but it's so funny. <laughs> and the adboard falls on top of his head. And they're laughing. I think. His monologue at the end during the christening party. It's such a great. Sorry, this is my cat scratching things. She shouldn't. Um, his big monologue at the end, the joie de vivre of it all. I love the moment when Harriet Anderson is listening to Alexander's ghoulish story of how the bishop is responsible for the death of his previous family. And their expression is so ambiguous. You don't know if she's on the side of the children, on the side of the bishop, she betrays them, but is she empathetic to the kids? You don't really know. Ariat Anderson 
is one of the best actresses that has ever lived. And she gets a tiny role here, but she makes so wonderful things with it. And Bergman shoots her in such an amazing way that really augments the ambiguity, the essential ambiguity of her performance. Is Harriet Anderson the maid? She's the maid. The one who has a cut on her hand and the one who the children confide in, but then she tells the story to the bishop yeah. who punishes Alexander. So many moments. I, I love the funeral procession, the little bursts of profanity. I love the very relatable moment when Alexander doesn't want to see his dying and dead father. Um, the screams of Emily, of their mother. You don't see her, but you hear her scream. Her crying when the father is dead. And you just see the sort of little opening at the door and you see his body in repose in the middle of the flowers. And you don't see her crying, but you hear her. And it's, it feels like such a lived-in moment. Like the kids don't see their mother crying, but they hear her through the house. And it's still incredibly painful. I, just, I love this. There's so much. There's this, that beautiful shot of Emily leaving the grandmother's house. And everything behind her is out of focus. And it looks like she's in this dream world of golden leaves just for an instant. And then she's going back to that white house, which is horrible. That in that instant where the grandmother is is seeing the photos of her late husband and organizing them in albums, it really ties into this theme of memories of the entire film, and it reminds me a lot of my maternal grandmother, who was the only person in my family who had patience to uh, to organize albums. So um, you can sort of in the albums of my family you can't really see when my grandmother died because it's when the album stopped being organized because she was the only one that did that and that again that's very personal to me but it, it reminded me of that it was very touching to to see a reminisce about these photos while organizing a little family album oh, there is so much I almost feel silly talking about this film. It feels silly to to put so much importance in a film in some regard. But I just love it so much. There are so many aspects of it that are unforgettable. Like I'm telling you this, I'm reliving them and I'm getting emotional again. Oh. And that opening, that opening shot's amazing. Where you, where you see the stage and you don't know if you're seeing a real theater until then Alexander's giant face appears and you see her in a diorama of a stage. Like, yeah, it, one of it's the most like, memorable images of this film. Yeah, it, it's like the, the saying that all the world of theater turned into an image. It's perfect. It's, it's perfect. It's amazing. Um, all the shots of water which remain in the theatrical version, but in the in the TV version, they sort of uh, each chapter begins with a shot of water and the title of the chapter. The shot of water is remain in the film, and 
I love how you see the, the passage of the seasons, like water running through eyes, through leaves. When you're at the bishop house, you see that skeleton in the almost dried up river. Um, just the, 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 the sets of that amazing antique shop, that labyrinth of junk. Looks endless because of the darkness, and and you get a sense of oh, if I were a kid looking at this, it would look infin infinite. The space look, you just see stuff as far as the eye can see, and that moment where Alexander, uh, you know, talks to God, that marionette, and 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 this is the end of me. Like this kid suddenly, I'm going to die. God is going to show his face to me. And then it's a joke, and again, it's this the cruel side of storytelling. Um, the image of the of the bishop's aunt burning alive is so haunting. This this specter of slain. And then that, that that single shot we get of the bishop dying, off, burnt to a crisp on the floor. That entire scene where Emily leaves, I think is masterful. I think Eva Froling is a great performance. When she's telling him that she drugged him, and that she's leaving, and the way that scene is shot, with that light coming from the window, reflected through the, the through the glass and through the rain, oh, just just perfect. This little glacier of marital coldness and the despair of young Malmsey as the bishop. I love how body it is at times for a film that's from the perspective of a kid. There's a lot of talk of sex, which the constant Bergman filmography again is got this fame of being very serious and austere, whatever. Um, but you know, he was always up for body humor. Like the way he started to get famous in America was because of his films were so sexual ooh, and scandalous for the 1950s. Um, like Summer with Monica because it frankly depicts two teenagers having sex and I like that there's this carnal voluptuousness to find Alexander like the compl complicated relationship between Uncle Gustav and his wife who sort of puts up who puts up with his adulterous ways and has learned to live with it but still has her limits and her rules. And I like how she almost, how his wife and his mother sort of take the side of the maid he's having an affair with when the maid gets pregnant. And it just tells you so much about this imaginary family that feels like you can imagine them living outside of the limits of this narrative. You can see their lives expand backwards and forwards from this little 
snapshots, we see of them. So many notes, like after um, the bishop sends Alexander to the attic and he tries to have Fanny kiss his hand and he tries to touch her and she just turns away. And Fanny gets very little to say in this film, but again, her books say so much. And it's such a rebuke, like the most innocent person in this film as seen is monstrosity. And it's almost like he sees it in that instant when she rebukes him. And you can just see it on the way his hand moves because you don't see his face. But you see her reaction. You see his hand just slowly draw away. It's great. It's perfect. It's a perfect film for me. I'm sorry. I sound like I'm waxing poetic about this film like a fool. Um, like a fanboy, but I am a Bergman fanboy and this one's great. May I speak now? <laughs> I am so sorry. <laughs> no, I, I love witnessing it because you know, that's why I wanted you to have I wanted you to um be in this episode you know not just like that i coalesced to your demands but um <laughs> i really needed someone to um help it you know unpack it with me because i if you feel silly talking about this film gosh i feel silly hosting an episode talking about this film because um you know there's so much uh right uh, essays and studies done to parse their way through Bergman's filmography and specifically this film and I am just this humble person who's like I just I kind of liked it you know there's a podcast person who just like on my first time to watch this film I feel silly I I honestly do and um so yeah you have I, no reason to feel silly yeah come on you started it whatever sorry um, but I do want to add another other scenes. Um, I loved how you know their first time in the new house when it was um, kind of raining, and there is already this this level of discomfort that even Emily could not hide anymore with his children, with her children. Um, and then you know when they have supper with the maid, and you just know that. Why are we staying with this conversation for very long? And why are we also paying attention to this maid? We know something's going to happen. We know something's up, but we don't know yet. And I think the film's strength is that it keeps you guessing without it being like a guessing game. You know, the same way that other films rely on the surprise of the next scene or whatever. This, this film is just like, well, it's unfolding and you just really don't know what's going to happen next, but you have this subconscious feeling of where it's going, but you're also not sure. So it's always, you're always in your toes, even if it's a very quiet scene or just Alexander telling a story. I love the scene where, um, Emily goes to her mother, I guess, and tells her that well, she can't divorce the Bishop and mother-in-law. Sorry. See, I feel silly. Um, just that, um, scene of like, she can't divorce. And it just like, it's almost shot always like we did two of them in the same frame, you know, almost like a medium shot, but it feels very emotionally heavy. And I guess the scene that just really jumps out of me in terms of like the energy that the film has is the, it's the scene where um, the old friend is buying the chest because it's this small <laughs> chase 
sequence that happens within this generally quiet film. <laughs> and then there is this, oh, okay. And then, you know, and then suddenly it goes into directions where like, all right, I see, okay, I, I, I see where this is going. And then the magic comes. I'm like, wait, all right, you know what? I surrender. I trust <laughs> in you, Ingmar Bergman. You will handle this thing. And I just went on for the ride. But that scene was all really captivating in a way that really stuck out with me compared to the rest of the film. Because the film, a lot of it is very captivating. A lot of it is very interesting. And, but that scene was just like this difference. You know, it, it really stands out. It's like, oh. You know, we, we also get this scene. And I just I also want to bring up something. Um, this film, in as much as, you know, I felt it's dark. <gasps> but I also felt it has lots of humor in moments where it feels naturally there. It's never forced. Like I said, it's almost like an anecdote. Where an anecdote is both... It can be dark and funny. You know, it can be about... Um, one moment you're talking about death, the next one you're kind of laughing about a sex joke or whatever. And that truth of like, we have these conversations, uh, you know, we have that 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 <laughs> truth of like how it flows. It's not easy to get that cinematically because cinematic cinema has its own rules of like how you write and how you transition notes and tones. But with this one, it's just like, it feels very seamless. Actually, I think the film is very seamless, even though we... There are moments when I feel like, oh, here, here's a chapter. Or I see this is episode three right here. I, I feel there's a seamlessness in the way it goes through. And it's really expertly handled. And I would say it's one of the most inspired best director nominations I've seen so far. Um, you know, I, I've said this shtick, you know, with Akira Kurosawa and Ron. I'm like, yeah, baby. This, you know, uh, this really fascinating how this film just... Um, for some reason it captured the Academy's attention six times, <laughs> you know, with six nominations. It's really interesting. And we'll talk about that later, but um just really this film is so defined and yet there's so much space for interpretation. And you'll have a takeaway, I have a takeaway, and the film just almost comes alive. Um, which, you know, is a strength of a film. If it's not obvious, you know, we've been gushing for like one and a half hours <laughs> about it. But yeah, is there anything else you'd like to add to Fanny Alexander? Oof. Uh, okay, yeah. Let me, let me think. Let me parse through the, the thousands of thoughts. Um, I almost regret that question, but let's go. <laughs> you know, I can set it. Uh, first of all, that, that thing where you said it's an anecdote, it, it's, about, it's very smart. Really great encapsulation of, of the the feeling of the picture. Um, honestly, I just want to talk about every actor in this film. <laughs> At least because I love them all so much. A lot of them have worked with Bergman countless times. Let's just and go I've... with SAG cast winner. <laughs> Let's just go. <laughs> if SAG was handling awards back then, it should have won. It probably wouldn't have been nominated. But, you know. Give my daughter a shot! <laughs> or maybe it would be the big chill or the right stuff, but you know, yeah. you'll never know. Uh, speculation. I have to say, uh, Bergman would be very happy with your bringing up Kurosawa because you loved Kurosawa. And you see, we're going, on the same wavelength, like you said, Alamarco. You're very Bergman esque. Um, That's not, I don't know if it's a compliment, but thank you. <laughs> it's both a compliment and not. <laughs> <laughs> 
You're going to have a lot of failed relationships with women. <laughs> I think I'm good with women. I think it's fine. <laughs> oh, no. oh no! Okay, let's not go there. Okay. Um... <laughs> Look, at least you're not as screwed up as Emily is in this film. Oh no! So you know, silver linings. Um... I might be the bishop though. Which terrifies me personally. I'm uh, both Alexander and the bishop. Let's move away from this thought and. Very personal right here. <laughs> it's exposing my flaws, you know. I'm um, not the film in question. <laughs> um, I love its design. Some of the costumes. <laughs> I think it's Oscar win is deserved, but some of the choices kind of break away from the immersion of it. Because I lo- I know a lot about fashion, well, a lot. I know he some. does. Claudia does. No, and he's trashing people. my picks for costume design because of it. No, but you know, <laughs> as, as someone who has studied, yeah, of course, fashion history. Though um, so this period is not my. Like the first second of the twentieth century, it's not my my period of expertise. That would be the eighteenth century, second half. Um, but there are some choices that you know you, you can see sort of like these are very theatrical costumes in some places, some very modern fabrics. But I, again, I think that works better in the TV version because you get to see more of the theater parts of the family. So the kind of artifice of the costumes outside of the theater sort of feels more like a choice and not like an accident. But yeah. But if I would nitpick anything in this film is that some of the costumes feel very polyester and I can see some zippers and um those corsets do either don't fit correctly or all the actresses are wearing modern bras, which breaks a bit the immersion, but that is incredibly nitpicky. <laughs> and it's really, it's just, it's fabulous. Everything's fabulous about this film. I love it. And those are my closing thoughts because if I don't stop, we'll be here for five and a half hours. Yeah. Um, one last thing. I do love terms of endearment. I just want to. I just want to clarify that. I love terms of endearment, but I don't love it. I like it a lot. So I love it. I'm not a hater. I love it. And I'm very, and I'm very happy. Shirley McLean finally won an Oscar. Give my daughter a shot. I am not happy with this impression though, but it's better than the other one. You're always bringing up with me. I can't believe I've known you forever! Uh, calm down, Scarlet. <laughs> I am a tree. Just kidding. Anyway. Alright, so that's... <laughs> I am a tree. How many slags do I have rottingen? Ten slags, varken more or less. Then I choose rottingen. Take two kullar there. Lägg på bordet. 
Kräp ner byxorna, Alexander. Böj dig fram, Stuva. Res dig upp, Alexander. Du har något att säga mig. Nej. All right, so let's talk about how Fanny Alexander, surprise, surprise, won the Oscar. Um, uh, in Sweden, it, the two versions screened in cinemas. Uh, screened. Let's go with that. And uh, 188 version screened on December 17, 1982. And then a 312 uh, miniseries cut was um, broadcasted in 1983. And also screened in cinemas. Um, in the United States, it premiered on June 17. Again, this was Sweden's third win and ninth nomination. Um, it won Golden Globe National Board of Review in New York from Critics, Los Angeles from Critics in 84. It was nominated in BAFTA as well. And um, Fan Alexander was also nominated for Best Director, Original Screenplay, and won for Cinematography, Art Direction, Costume Design, and, of course, Foreign Language Film. By the way, before we continue... Um, you wrote something for Photogeny recently, right? Yeah, I wrote a piece um, about Ingmar Bergman's memoir, The Magic Lantern, and I talk a little bit about Fanny Alexander in that piece and how it relates to Bergman's biography. Yeah, so be sure to check it out. I will be posting the link in the episode description just for them to see your why you were the right person to do this episode. Anyway, um, you know, we've seen these um, nominees, you know, uh, for example, in, two th- in 1990, um, Cyrano de Bergerac was nominated for five Oscars, um, but didn't win foreign language film. Amélie got five or six and also didn't win foreign language film. Um, also the same thing with Pan's Labyrinth, got five or six and also won a bit. Um, why do you think this won? Because the Academy loved Bergman. Like, his films won this category multiple times. And he was a previous nominee for Best Director. A previous, his films had been nominated for Best Picture before. He was one of the closest things the foreign film category had to a a superstar director and this film was very publicized as his last film including by Bergman himself liar um so yeah I can if I were an academy member at the time I'd have voted for it but bubbles because I love the film but because oh this is the last film of this great master we love so much Let's award it. And also, it's the best film. 
that let's helps. put that aside for now. <laughs> sure, sure, but you know, come on. After all that I said, do you think I don't believe it's about to come on? No, it's a B minus. <laughs> no, um, it, it, it. I think I would, you know, given that I don't have the history for that anyway. Um, with that, I think it's now time for us to check. That film, the films that were nominated alongside Fan Alexander, because while Fan Alexander is this mammoth of a film that dominated this year, you know, won four Oscars. It's the foreign language film with the most wins until Crouching Hidden, Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon in two thousand, and then Parasite in two thousand nineteen. Well, they're tied. Um, they tied with four, yeah, and those two were Best Picture nominees, and this one wasn't. Um. So 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 so. It's so, probably close. Yeah, we're probably close. Um, to best picture nomination. Let's check the other nominees. So the nominees that year were Carmen from Spain, Antrenu from France, Le Bal from Algeria, and The Revolt of Job from Hungary. Which one would you like to discuss first? <clears throat> Um, you pick. <laughs> I'm fine with whichever. Then let's just go with alphabetical order. Okay. All right. So Carmen from Spain. It premiered in Cannes, where it won um, artistic contribution. It was nominated for Golden Globe and a BAFTA win in 1984. Um, also nominated for score and sound. It is about a. Um, Wait, 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 wait. I, I've seen this film. <laughs> just a sec, just a sec. I'm sorry. Have you? Uh, wow. Wow. In my own show, huh? <laughs> um, just a sec. Another interesting film about theatrical artifice and life mingling together. It's a nice companion to Fanny and Alexander. Yeah. Carmen is about a dance, a, a dance director, a choreographer who is looking for the right Carmen um, that will be the main dancer in a production. And then he falls in love with his Carmen. And they have an affair. And, you know, um, the plot of the Carmen and their own personal life becomes this intertwined mixture of fiction and reality so i don't know why it becomes so seductive while i was talking about the plot for carmen but what is it what do you think of carmen i loved it i think it's great next film uh, <laughs> just going so i'm just kidding very, sorry it's a very fascinating exploration again of the barriers between artifice and reality between fantasy and life um, I think the way it negotiates those tensions is very interesting. It's both suspenseful and erotic and violent almost at certain moments. The way Carlos Saura captures the dance and both the dance in terms of choreography and the dance between the character dynamics and between the film's perceived reality and the film's perceived show within a show it's all these mingling of tensions that work for a very it work to create a very complex movie watching experience at least for me 
and it's the ending is one hell of a punch. And yeah, I thought the editing was great, especially. Um, yeah, um, I'm coming into watching Carmen. Uh, having previously seen another film of Carlos Saura, which also mixes dance and storytelling, which is Tango on uh, 1998. And um, in as much as Tango, I think, is more uh, audacious in its scope and what it's trying to say, I actually think Carmen succeeds more in this mixture of, you know, how the lines blur when you're an artist very, very much involved in the story that you're trying to produce and the personal life that comes that affects the work. And there are, it's like Fine Alexander in the same, there are times where I just give up. Like, is this still dance or was he ready to kill? You know, I just like give up and I just surrender to this beautiful blending of reality and fiction. And it's a film where the rhythm and the pacing and the movement of the camera is strongly intertwined to the dance and to dance in general, which makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I remember because I'm writing a film about figure skating. And someone told me that, um, well, you have to integrate, if you want to make your film more better, basically, you have to integrate the concept of figure skating and how you tell a story. You cannot just like go tell the story and just utilize it, you know, integrate what makes figure skating figure skating into the storytelling. This also applies to Carmen, in my opinion, in such a way that there is this, um, calculation that just it's, it's almost very it's almost calculated you know in how it builds and builds but then there's this delicious like almost when you when you're such a good dancer well as a dancer um you know when once you master the dance and it becomes this free-flowing but you know there's so much going on in it and i think the film captures that specific the concept of dance through its filmmaking which makes it such a another complete experience and i really loved it and um i enjoy this i think it's the most enjoyable of because if we're gonna talk about enjoy i think it's the most enjoyable of these five how is it to be so incorrect (laughs) did you enjoy fanny alexander oh my gosh of course i enjoy that film i mean enjoy I wouldn't watch that film so many times if I didn't enjoy it. All right, then let's move on. All right, okay. No, oh, come on. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was joking. I love you. And I love Carmen. It's okay. great. And you're right. It's, it's a film about dance that, see, that embodies dance itself. See, that's the word I was looking for. Embody. Thank you. <laughs> um... <laughs> to be confused with another Carmen that was made in 84 and also got like a few foreign language film nominations elsewhere and there's also another Carmen this year and what is happening with 1983 to 84 why are there so many Carmens anyway um, but this version of Carmen I think is very distinctive and I think I don't know its place in Spanish cinema but gosh I really enjoyed this one well Carlos Sara I think is one of the great spa- masters of Spanish cinema. Yeah. Usually Carlos's are really good in cinema. So it's really encouraging when I hear someone. Like, and he's already 89 years old and he's still living. And I'm like, <laughs> long live the Carlos's. You know, my dad is called Carlos and he also did film. See, it's... <laughs> we dominate the world. Because we are dominant. Anyway. Uh... <laughs> 
Oh, oh. Scandal. Scandal. <laughs> well, I'm usually dominant, except in my feelings, so I'm very submissive. Anyway, um, anything else we could add to Carmen? Um, what you what you were saying about submission and dominance? It's an interesting through line through Carmen too. Yes. <laughs> And through other submissions this year, uh, it was a key year. Yep, it is. And also, just gonna go back to this dominant submissive. You know, I just made it as a joke, but really, you know, when when the artist, you know, in this case, the choreographer and the and the dancer, you know, there are certain places where, all right, now he has the power, or oh, now she has it. And you know, when crafting art, the usually, you know, even in film, um, you know, um, we're so very much like in the auteur theory state of mind like oh the the director is the only person the one thing but really when in creating art i believe there is this shifting power dynamics all the time and film captures it very well in terms of dance you know it's very collaborative yeah. and even between the performers themselves like that amazing scene where the two the two main actresses are dancing yeah sort of dance fighting with each other it's great yeah, I love it. Moving on to Andrenu, or you can also call it um, Coup de Foudre, <laughs> I think. Uh, it's a biographical film uh, directed by Diane Curie, who it is about um, a young Jewish woman who um, becomes friends with another woman, uh, Madeline. And, you know, they become very close friends and, they, you know, they share their own problems in life because they have their own problems with men, <laughs> with their men and their own aspirations and their own um, shiz to resolve um, until, you know, that friendship becomes very deep and uh, it lasts <laughs> a lifetime. Friendship. 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 <laughs> anyway, uh, I yeah, it premiered in Chicago. It screened in the Chicago International Film Festival. It stars Isabelle Lepere in a, a Mew Mew. Mew Mew? Yeah. Mew Mew. Yeah, so what do you think of uh, Entre Nous or Coup de Foudre? I, 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 don't I know. Yeah. I know I liked it much more than you did, judging from our letterbox ratings. I really loved it. Loved it? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't want. No, I'm not going to spoil my rating. My ranking of the of the of the films, but oh, so good! I I'd heard about this film before. I realized I think I've watched this film before <laughs> while watching it. Like this is I've I've seen this before. Deja vu. Um, I remember hearing a lot about the film from Phyllis Nag, you know the the screenwriter of Carol, because she loves this film. And I can't see why. It's it, it is so it's very formally modest, doesn't really call attention to itself, though it's so pristinely designed, the costumes are to die for. Um with the the way it it, it, it depicts the marital struggles of each woman and there there's not their struggle per se, but they're reckoning with their own identity and their own feelings for each other. 
in post-war France, it's a great portrait of a place in time, of that specific time of reconstruction after World War II and the prosperity of the 50s. Oh, it's great. And it's very personal. It felt very intimate. And, you know, there is reason for it. This is basically um, a daughter, Diane Curie, telling the story of her mother and the woman who loved her mother and who her mother loved, and they lived together until death separated them. And I think it's very touching. It's a very mature and complicated purview that is slightly suffused with nostalgia but doesn't let it doesn't let that define any sort of um shallowness it's really deep in its depiction of desire of sex of the dynamics between women and their husbands it's it's, it's great i love this um and i thought the cast was great isabelle Huppert is perfect New Mew is is even better than Uper, I, I thought. The way she 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 lets you see uh, very clearly uh, the way she's falling in love with this friend is so clear and at the same time subtle. Felt so genuine. Um, and I I don't remember his name. Let me research the the. Um, the actor who plays Isabelle Huppert's husband. Really good. I, Guy Marchand. He's so good. And I was very surprised that the final note is one of ambivalent peace between all the parties involved. Which you don't really... Again, this is one of the reasons Carol felt so revolutionary as a book and as a film. It's like this period queer love story with a happy ending. And even more surprising, it's probably like the patriarchal figure sort of reluctantly accepts that this is how things are going to go forward now. And it was surprising. It was deep. It was intimate. It's beautiful. I love the film. And it didn't feel indulgent emotionally. Because I was afraid it was go, ve- going to veer into melodrama, which I like, but it's not always appropriate. And, and it didn't. It stayed. It stayed um, almost chillingly complicated and adversarial towards the audience without, you know, it didn't, it, it didn't seem like it made compromises about the story it was telling. And I thought it was refreshing. I think I think you know when we were messaging one another, and I think you kind of mentioned that you loved it more than I did. But I would concur and say I think it's a very solid film. I think this is where it being more of a matter of fact, the matter of fact way of storytelling actually works for it, because there are no unnecessary embellishments, and we just see how natural um, these two characters grow and grow together, and until ultimately in the end. I realize that, oh, that's what it's about. You know, when you finally see the note in the film, like, you know, they stay together. I don't think it's a spoiler that uh, Diane Curie's parents are... Uh, anyway, <laughs> I just say that there is such a natural progression. It's about lesbians. 
Because I'm lesbian. Come on. Lesbians. <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, lesbian rights. Yeah. I just love how it got there. Mm-hmm. And it's not as if it was censoring itself before going there. It was very clear about how it traced the journey of these characters. But then in the end, I don't know, this is just me probably being stupid or not paying attention. But then I realized, oh, it's there. Oh, but then it's so natural. And I yeah, I, I don't share the same passion with Mew Mew. I actually think she's a weak, weaker between her bear and Oprah and Mew Mew, but um, they work well together. I really don't give me that smile, Claudio. You know that smile is just like, I don't agree with you, but mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> I don't agree with you, but I'm not going to fight you. But it's, that's, that, that's what it means. That's how friendship should go, anyway. Um, oops. <laughs> anyway, I, I think I, Antonio surprised me really because I did not initially, I did not go, I did not know where it's going to go. It started in the camps. And you were following Isabella, okay? Yeah, it's impossible to escape World War II. In this category, of course, you know. This category is swastikas and Nazi every year. And I'm like, all right. At least this one moved moved on quickly into couture. Yeah. Ah. Um, ah, it's, very, it's a very solid one. And I'm kind of um, sad that this is kind of hard to find these days because... This is a solid one, and I'm now falling for early Uper. So, um, really falling. As you should. Yeah, she's really she's amazing. amazing. And we're like, and into the weird casting for a love story, you know, because she's so abrasive in her screen presence, but that works because that sort of. Um, cuts needless sentimentality out yes. of the thing. It makes it feel more honest somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no! It's it's a it's a great example of how to write, like you know, friend friendship. I would love to have this kind of friendship anyway. <laughs> um. Anything else? What internal? No, I just wished it had been eligible for other categories apart from the foreign language film because I'd have nominated for a lot of other things. Costume design. Oh, costumes completely. The costumes are amazing, <laughs> and and even set. I thought the differences and evolution of the apartments throughout the years was so well done, and it told you so much about these people and their social strata, and even the country as a whole. France during the post-war. It was just perfect. It's, it's, it's really good. It's and it's, it's surprising. I think I'd watched it a long time ago. Um, I'd forgotten I'd watched it, and now revisiting it, it's I was just dazzled. Yeah, that is an entrepreneur from France. Now let's go to France again. Oh no, it's Italy. Oh no no no, it's it's Algeria. I'm sorry. It's a Lebal from Algeria, quote unquote. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it premiered in Berlin where it won Best Director for Etta Riscola. It's a quote unquote Algerian film that won the Cesar for Best Film and Best Director and Davide Donatello for Best Film and Best Director. It is about a group of um, 
wait, don't, don't spoil it. It's about um, a group of, it's a band of characters um, that... They're get... not characters, they're types. Anyway. Can... <laughs> <laughs> it's about a group, of, a group of people, men and women, who are um, together in a ballroom in France. And it's a decade-spanning, quote-unquote, story <laughs> of these people continuing to dance well, through um, different events in history. Yeah. I, you're exploding. Tell me what's happening. No, 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 no. It's, it's from the 20s to the, to the 80s, right? Yeah. So that's Le Bal. Um, we've talked about it and like... Uh, I don't well, get why is this representing Algeria. Yeah, I don't understand how it was eligible for Algeria because they are so finicky sometimes not allowing a film to represent one country because it's not enough of that country. How is this an Algerian film? Um, it can only see like... Um, this is it's in- not some financing, right? I don't think... Algerian. I think some facilities. <laughs> <laughs> the catering was Algerian. Fuck off. I think there are some facilities that were in Algeria because um, I'm trying to find. I mean, I mean, I really paid attention to the end credits uh, because um, I really want to understand why is this an Algerian film? Um, I don't think it says here and there it's a Franco-Italian Algerian production. That is all set in France with French actors and a, and a, a crew of Italian people. Yeah, with an Italian director. Based on a French play. And I'm trying to look at the actors. Are many of them like Algerian too? I don't... Oh, and it, was, and it was shot in Italy, in Cinecita. And there's only one set. So, you know. I'll have to review the end credits to... No more. Why is this Algerian? Um, but like, you have you have talked about a film that was disqualified because of this. Well, a place in the world. Yeah, was uh, it disqualified? Yeah, yeah, no, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a place in the world was disqualified, and then the director of Adolfo Arstrain mentioned dangerous moves, Le Bal. Um, black and white in color. Like, why are they allowed to represent their countries, even if they they're like it's Ivory Coast, Algeria, and Switzerland, but they're all predominantly French productions. Why is mine and predominantly Argentinian film with two key people from Uruguay not allowed to represent Uruguay? So he, the director, used it as a, like a, a precedent. To like in the case, so like, why are they allowing it? And you know, the court said, "Well, the academy may have been lax then, but they're implementing the rules now." So, anyway, let's 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 backtrack. And you know, we've been talking about its eligibility firsthand. Let's talk about what do you think of Lebal? Well, I think it's more interesting to talk about its eligibility than to talk about the film itself. So that says it all. Uh, I wasn't a fan. I admire its premise and I admire the spot of doing it. I think it doesn't work. Um, the performance style may have worked with a completely different shooting style, one that was more theatrical 
or at least more attuned to the stylized movement of the actors, but it wasn't. Um, everybody's playing a caricature. I think the acting is terrible. I'm sorry. I think the performances are all calibrated for the stage, not the film. And this, like, you can shoot a film in in a way that makes this sort of hyper theatrical performances work. Like I, I would say Peter Greenaway does it in a in a perfect manner, but this one is very traditional in the way it shoots its actors, and the actors are not doing acting that is calib- calibrated for the, the camera. I'm sorry. And I some people may say it's like silent film acting, and to those people I say you haven't watched enough silent films. Um because they don't say anything, they just dance and react to each other. Um I didn't like. I thought it was it was working with stereotypes. Its purview of history was incredibly shallow. Um, I give it a passing grade just because I think the concept is so cool. But the the execution really really disappointed me. No. Yeah, I'm sorry to be so down on the film, but it because I was. I've liked a lot of Vittorio Scala's past films, like La Nuit La Nuit des Varennes. Ugh. and other films of I I only know I only can only remember the Portuguese titles for French Porcs de Maus. I don't know it's pronounced in I don't know Dirty Rotten Scoundrels perhaps in in English. Anyway, I've liked films of Vittorio Scola before. I think uh, it's Brutti Sporchi Cattivi, the, the title in Italian. Um so I came into this one with high expectations, and I was very disappointed. Mm-hmm. What about you? I've seen a letter Escola film, uh, La Familia. Yeah. I didn't love it. Um, just a sec. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to mine something, because I'm also trying to... I'm pulling up um, records now. In articles about Lebal being Algerian. <laughs> uh, just to prove that it's Algerian. Lebal? Okay. I'm taking a look. This was another joint Algerian and European production that was and was this time produced with the help from France and Italy. Huh. With the help of France and Italy. Are you telling me the idea to make this film was Algerian? I don't believe you. I think in the earlier time, in the earlier years, it's it's also like, you know, with France and Algeria. It's... I mean, sure, but like... <laughs> Algerian independence is almost a plot point in this film, if there is anything close to a plot point. But the Algerian war is featured in this film. Maybe that's why it's Algerian. Um, oh, 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 I found something. I found something. Sorry. One of the production companies is Office National pour le Commerce et l'Industrie Cinematographique. C'est un organisme de production et de distribution de films en Algérie. It's a production production from it's a production house okay. from Algeria. That's the only connection I can make. 
Yeah. Yeah, the National Office for Trade and Film Industry was an organization for the production and distribution of films in Algeria, created in 1967. Uh, they had um, produced films like Z and uh, this one, Nibal. A Commander Grift. Yeah. Um, It's like Bergman. I also, uh, I commend the fact that that after Scenes from a Marriage was ineligible because it had aired on Swedish TV before being theatrically released. Uh, like all of his films afterwards, they went into all the tiniest loopholes to get eligible for the Oscar. <laughs> Even since that really shouldn't have been, like the magic flute. Yeah, like, that shouldn't. should not have been eligible. Because that is a TV movie. I think it's a film. I think it's eligible, but whatever. But by the rules, it shouldn't have been eligible. But I'm happy it was. I think I think we should celebrate film in whatever shapes and forms it appears. I think, you know, when saying that on the record, we could call the Academy to rescind the nomination for the Magic Flute in 75. Anyway. Off. No. Anyway. anyway. It's so a great film. Anyway. Um, small axe. Anyway. Uh, so, yeah, we found, you know, um, real time. We found out how Lebal was an Algerian film. Uh, congratulations to us. One of the production houses is um, <laughs> is uh, Algerian, and I think it's common. It's more common before the Algerian French production co-productions, and you know they could also say like, "Well, what about um language? Well, there's no dialogue, <laughs> and that's the thing with this film. There's no dialogue at all. Everything's done through dance." Yeah. It's kind of interesting that it's considered a foreign language film. You know what? I'm just going to highlight something that I saw right now, you know, in the IMDb. The comment that is the the review that is featured right now, Jete Enchanté. Ironically, this film was nominated for the Oscar as the best foreign language film. It is not a foreign language film. It's a film without language. Um, I really loved it in certain parts. And they kind of lost me a bit somewhere in the middle, and then regained my interest in, and near the end. I think it's a very interesting concept, and I think they almost pull it off very well. I, after when I was watching this film, all I could think of was like, I want to make a freaking dance film after this, and um, I think Carmen is better. Carmen is a better dance film. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then um, I know I really am interested in oh, just always interested in how it depicted um, changes in time and you know how these characters interacted. Um, I loved it more than you did. I ended up dancing with it, and it's an it's an audacious undertaking. And so I understand yeah. like best director for um at risk called the Berlin International Film Festival and as proven by Italian Film Award and French Film Awards. They really love the direction of this film as well. Um I don't love the direction at all. I think it's the weakest point of the film. Sure. Yeah. No, because I think if you tweak the direction, everything else works. But the direction just fails. I, and I say this as someone who really wanted to love it. Maybe I went into it with too high expectations. All right. So <clears throat> the last film on this lineup is Far From Dancing. It's The Revolt of Joe 
from Hungary, uh, which didn't get in anywhere aside from the Oscar nomination for foreign language film. It's about an old Jewish couple. Excuse me, right? It's an old, an elderly Jewish couple who adopts this non-Jewish child. Who uh, this non-Jewish child? What? They buy him. Sure. And then they adopted him so that they could uh, pass their wealth um, before the Nazi occupation happens in uh, Hungary. And this was directed by Imre Gyungyusi and Barna Kabai. Yeah. What do you think of it? Well, it's World War II, so, you know, we're back. Um, it was fine. Um, I admit I am not the biggest fan, of, especially when the setting is World War II, as it often is with Oscar films, of this um, narrative archetype of the young rebellious child and the and their dynamic with an older person, and they kind of both teach each other to live. And, Oh, you mean life is beautiful? I wasn't really thinking about that one, but, <laughs> but sure, I guess. Um, <laughs> I think more like even a film that I love, like Central Station. I think the concept is sort of rote. Um, but it's it's an interesting perspective to look at um, the time bit before the Nazis before Nazi occupation and the the concept of of the importance of passing on not just the property but a culture felt it, it was the most fascinating and touching part of the film Especially because in certain ways, the film itself is also a perpetuation of that same culture that this old couple is trying to preserve by instilling it into these young men. Because um, someone or something doesn't die completely while someone still remembers it. You know, um, as long as there are memories, as long as people know about something, that thing has disappeared. Um, the importance of remembering, especially in the context of an Holocaust movie, was powerful. And I don't think it's the most interesting piece of filmmaking. I, I do think the cinematography is interesting sometimes. The and all the aesthetic. That's some really arresting images, even if the version I saw didn't have the best picture quality. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. It's it's a good film. I can't say it's bad. It's a good film. It didn't excite me, but it made me. It gave me gave me food for thought, and it had some beautiful moments, especially those involving Jewish tradition and the passing of knowledge from the old to the young. Yeah, um, I was. I, I I didn't know what to expect. I was probably expecting like. Um, uh, a World War Two reiteration of uh, the of, of the story of Job from the Bible, this suffering man. I was ex I kind of expecting that, and I didn't know that it was gonna go this way. But I was 
really touched by this film. It's very matter of fact, but then there are some things here and there that just, you know, the balancing of like those in you know stylistic choices and and how the dread slowly comes in. It, it's almost like all. It's also Antrenu. It's almost it reminds me of Antrenu in such a way that the storytelling is also very matter of fact, and then the the impact is in the end. And with this one, you see this little things that's happening with the characters and it's all wonderfully done. And then in the end, there is this reckoning like, oh, I see now where it's going. And it's just sinks my heart when I saw it like, oh gosh, this is very powerful. But the film is actually quiet for the most part. It just lets characters in the sign, you know, talk about lack of, music and um, you know there's certain things here and there that um you know little by little you see oh okay there's this um kind of this scenes kind of play like kind of slice of life like what 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 is this gonna add up to and then they have an accumulated power by the end and i think it's just very powerful and uh um i really was surprised because um i have nazi fatigue I have World War II fatigue. <laughs> I'm done with these um, Germans, Nazis, occupying countries and seeing them in film and occupying my life. Anyway, so um, it's really refreshing to see a film that attacks me in this way because I think it goes to... It, it focuses on the family and the tradition. Um, I like the recurring theme in these films of um, artifice and reality sort of dancing hand in hand. Like the uh, the that man who pretends to be shot earlier in the film that ends up being shot in real life. It's a, it's an interesting through line through a lot of these films. Yep, and also there's this uh, the the people that brought the cinema projector. Mm-hmm. It's also yeah. an interesting thing of like um storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because it's through storytelling that a lot of times you you can keep tradition alive. Yeah. So yeah. It's an interesting companion to finding Alexander in some ways. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I'm actually what, liking yeah. it more retrospective now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, it's just fascinating. I think I think you brought it up in our chats that Fan Alexander and Trenu and the Revolt of Joe feel like uh and some of them are truly like children looking back at the thing that's happened in the past. Yeah. And then you also have like Carmen and Libal both dance oriented films. Yeah. Uh, and which like kind of uh, do something with a storytelling, whether they worked or not, that is out of the question. The thing is, all of these films are either tackling, are doing something with storytelling, or is about the act of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> do you do you usually notice these sort of connections in the foreign maybe language? It's, maybe no, maybe it's your chat that made me notice it. <laughs> Because usually I'm just like, all right, injected me five films right now, and just like, <laughs> yeah, I love this lineup more than you do. So, um, 
I don't know because I was... but you're extreme on Fan Alexander, so your love with that like overpowers everything else. Well, and like Anthony and Carmen, I thought are amazing too in their own way. So yeah, I will. Well, I am completely devoted to one of them. Obviously. I, I obviously, I love two of them. I'm. I'm sort of ambivalent, but also really interested in what one of them is doing, and that just flat out is like another. So, okay. I, you know, it's a strong lineup overall. It's it's a even, normal Oscar lineup. <laughs> and even the one I dislike is Food for Thought, and actually I can't say that of all Oscar lineups. Oh. Not actress. Also actress sometimes. Mm. <laughs> I, I love them all the time. <laughs> well, I really dislike biopics. So, um, being an Oscar obsessive who dislikes biopics is a recipe for constant disappointment. Oh, I know. I remembered. What? Was it our chat about the Iron Lady? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I'm. Knock, knock. Who's there? Lebal. Laval who? He's Laval, he's Laval. There ain't nobody else I can see. Anyway, it's also Meryl. Ooh, Meryl, 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 Meryl. <laughs> I love Meryl. Ooh, yes. 1983 Silkwood, yes. But... <laughs> you should have won. For the Iron Lady, yes. Thank you so much. Now let's move on to the other no, films that were nominated in this year. The other film that was nominated but not in foreign language film is The Return of Martin Guerre from France. I intentionally did not let you speak. Um, it was nominated in BAFTA in 1984. It won Kansas for foreign language film, National Board of Review Top 5. It's nominated for Best Costume Design. I'm just going to read a summary on IMDb because I don't, I haven't seen it. I know you tried. It's okay. We're friends. In medieval France, some villagers challenge a man's claim of identity when he, as he says, returns home from some time in the army. I think it stars Gerard Depardieu, right? Yes. A lot of films this year start Gerard Depardieu. Yes. So now let's move to the other submissions. There were 26. I just have to say, I am very sorry. I didn't watch Le Retour of the Martin Guerre. I am very disappointed in myself. Tell that to me. (laughs) Tell that to me. Um, So this year we have 26 submissions. We already discussed the five, the nominees. So now let's talk about some of the other submissions because Claudio, in full Claudio Alves tradition, watched... Some of the submissions, you know, he watched um, eight, but eight in 26 is like a lot. So there are 26 submissions and the first timer is Dominican Republic. Um, yes. So let's talk about some of the, actually, I would let you talk about um, some of the films that you've seen, the submissions. Can I just go with them quickly? Are you ready? Oh, okay. Okay, I'm ready. <sighs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a game show in one minute. <laughs> oh, no, I hate this no, 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 no. I don't do well with this kind of pressure. All right. <clears throat> first film. The first time in submission. Guaguasi from Dominican Republic. It premiered in Chicago. It's about a simple man from the mountains who falls in love with a chorus girl during the Cuban Revolution. 
Um, Take it away. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna use that yeah. video. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought it was more interesting than good. This film, the editing is really amazing in some places. How frenetic it can be, especially as it shows the the pace, the quick pace of history during the Cuban Revolution. I'm not sure the integration of the main storyline within the historical context is completely successful. And I do find some of the way the narrative develops a bit misogynistic. That being said, the cinematography and editing really make the film, especially the latter. So at, at, from a formalistic standpoint, I was really into this. From a storytelling standpoint, maybe not so much. A Woman in Flames from West Germany. It premiered in Cannes. It's about a frustrated housewife who decides to become a call girl and falls for a call boy. It is very kinky, which was unexpected for uh, an Oscar submission. Like, they would never nominate this. This film features BDSM, humiliation, and a woman being set on fire. Um... The title is literal. Um, oh, it's literal. It's literal. <laughs> it is. Oh, gosh. Did you fight for the metaphor? Oh, she's so hot. She's flaming. No. Yeah, I thought she's, this girl is on fire. Oh, she's really, she really is. Oh, she's really on fire. <laughs> um, I really like the ideas in this film more than the film itself. If I was more into the form of Guaguasi than the storytelling, I was really much more into the concepts and storytelling of A Woman in Flames than I was into the execution of it. It goes for a very deadpan, humoristic tone that I don't think it fully works. Um, I enjoy non-naturalistic acting a lot and, and the work of apathy into an actor's repertoire is very interesting. But I don't think this fully works. It's a fascinating picture. I would watch it again. Um, I think it has some problems with casting. Like the male lead is supposed to be this well of charisma with no depth. And like he is admittedly shallow and goes by on charm. But the actor really, to me, had no screen presence. And I just couldn't get it. There was a blocking problem in terms of the casting and the character didn't fit. Um, it's very Belle de Jour-like in its exploration of, a, of um, bourgeoisie moors through a lens of an housewife going into prostitution. Um, the lead character is the best part. I want another film about her that maybe develops her particular sort of liberation in a more emotionally complex manner than this film does. It felt very academic and sometimes... This was one film where I maybe a push of melodrama like a, in a fast bend of way would have worked really well. It's a bit too dry. 
And you know, insects, you never want to be too dry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, I have to say, congrats, West Germany, for picking this film because it's not a very smart decision, but it's a brave one. Also, the ending is brilliantly off kilter. And the ship sails on from Italy. Out of competition in Venice, it, star- it stars directed by Federico Fellini. It's about a luxury ship that leaves with people to scatter the ashes of a famous singer. It is centrally designed. It is gorgeous to look at. Um, like Le Bal, I think its exploration of history is a bit shallow. And like Le Bal, its directorial approach and the artifice of its performances work together really well. This, I read a letterbox review that said this was a, a Muppet movie without Muppets, and I sort of agree. Uh, it is often absurd, ridiculous, um, maybe not the most complex historical document in Fellini's filmography. I think, for example, Amarcor does some of what this film is trying to do much better. Um, but it's, again, the look of it is just so good. I just want to look at it. The costumes are splendid. They're so beautiful. Uh, and there are a lot of sequences that truly inspire in their grotesque glamour. Also, the ending is really good, too. A lot of these films have good endings. This ending, it goes into the artifice of filmmaking in such a fearless way that I couldn't help but laugh in the light. Next. (laughs) I was sort of quick with this one, wasn't I? Yes. Yes! I like it when you're quick. <laughs> I'll cut that out, I promise. <laughs> Antarctica from Japan. It premiered in Berlin. It's about scientists in Antarctica and their relationship with dogs that were left to fend for themselves. Can I talk about what Japan could have selected but didn't? Or should I keep that for later? Do as you please. I mean, Antarctica is good, so if you're a dog person, I suppose. Um, It's a very anti-sentimental view of a real incident that was later turned into a Hollywood movie that, of course, made it into a feel-good bag of shite. Um, Yeah. Um... It's the, the location photography is amazing in this film, as is the work with sound and even editing. I think getting those canine performances must have been hell of a task. <sighs> that being said, I wish there was more development in the human side of the, of the story. There are some attempts at making a two, uh, like, a Two, a multifaceted movie. One part is about the dogs in their struggle to survive. The other part is about human guilt. So an animal need for survival and the human spiritual burden of guilt. 
And I thought that was a very interesting approach that wasn't taken to its full potential. So it was frustrating. It is especially frustrating when you think of the films Japan could have selected instead. Most mainly the Ballad of Narayama, which is a masterpiece. And it should have been selected. And it's the only film from this year that in my mind, well, there's another one, um, could even compete with Fighting Alexander. I'm sorry. Uh, it frustrates me. And also the performances in Narayama are amazing and should have been recognized everywhere. So yeah, but I understand why they chose Antarctica. It's more accessible in terms, it's, you know, like people love that. Um, it's a real story, so that's good for Oscar. And it was a big box office success in Japan. Yeah. And a cultural phenomenon, so I completely understand why they picked it, even if I disagree. It's the highest grossing Japanese film until Princess Mononoke in 1997. Yeah. So. It was really a smash hit. Yeah. The Fourth Man from the Netherlands. It premiered in Toronto and Chicago. National Board of Review Top 5, 1984. It's about that disturbed man, not me, who starts to have an affair with a woman. <laughs> oh, this film is a delight. Speak of kinky films. Uh, yeah. It's great. It's perverse and twisted in the best of ways like an hypersexual film noir given an 80s treatment. Truly, it's it, it's delightful. And I'm not always in Paul Verhoeven's wavelength. But this time I was. Maybe because it's gay shit. So, you know, I kind of can relate in some spiritual level. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's great. Everybody should watch it. I think it has really fun performances gruesome gruesome scenes and it's and it can be very sexy even as it's making you sort of it's great at mixing erotica and grotesquery at turning one at the same time it's unnerving so in some ways the Paul Verhoeven brand but executed to maybe its fullest potential Vasa from Soviet Union won a Golden Prize in Moscow. It's about a ruthless millionaire entrepreneur who will be forced to desperate measures. So this is an adaptation of a play. It looks like an adaptation of a play. But maybe because I'm very into uh, Russian miserabilism and class warfare dramatized by depressed German, by depressed, not German, by depressed Russian authors. Uh, I was really into it. It's, I think it uses the stagnancy of a filmed play of that style of filmmaking to its benefit because it, this is set on the eve of revolution. And I just, it's a film that carries it with it the, the legacy and history of Soviet cinema in some ways, but by direct contrast to it. It really feels like a dying world and that the film itself wants to embody this sense of a dying breed of reality that is just going to be snuffed out 
by a new modernity, by a new world, by the Soviet Union. And it's not particularly subtle in showing the vices and degradation of the, of the higher classes and the mercenary evils of capitalism. But it does so through very committed, I wouldn't call it lustful, but really showy performances that work beautifully. And sometimes when you have such a rigid camera work and, and blocking, when the performances go big, the contrast between the two, the friction really works. And this, in this, it works. It's a bit too long, I will admit. But, you know. Look, I'm someone who sees three hour plus Romanian films that are just people talking about the miseries in their family and in their country's history. And I think that's super entertaining. So I am not the best person to judge this sort of film. I've got a couple of screws loose, but I liked it. Solid film. Growing up from Taiwan, I found um, an inept summary. <laughs> it's about a man who grows from a child, a teenager into an adult. I don't know what that means. So <laughs> take it away. <laughs> okay, this film, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's about growing up. It's about a, 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 a kid growing up into a man. <laughs> uh, it's really the story of this kid who is the son of a single mother who moves from the city to the country and marries this older man who adopts her son and we see the as the years go by how this family dynamic changes uh how this older man sort of really wants to be a father to this little boy but they just don't work don't work together how he wants to protect his wife but it's almost more paternalistic than it's more like father behavior than husband behavior in some regards. And we see the kid lashing out, disappointing his mother, um, disappointing his stepfather, growing up, the family disintegrating, tragedy strikes. And it's very matter of fact in some regards, but it's also, it feels impressionistically um, viewed through memory and through the lens of a kid's perspective sometimes. And I really like the cast, especially the actors playing the parents. I thought they were great at negotiating the layers of perspective that the film is working with. And this is a very historically important film. It's one of the first big films of the, of the new Taiwanese cinema. Um, it really set the stage for a movement of renewal and rebirth of a national cinema that would give us such great filmmakers as Wu Shen and Ang Lee. Actually, Wu Shen is one of the screenwriters of this film. And it kind of shows in some parts to its benefit, in my opinion. Of course... No Trace of Sin from Portugal. It's about a rich young man who starts to receive calls from a mysterious woman from a woman in the barracks in the military where he's serving. Uh, why am I explaining this? Take this. So this was quite a financial success in Portugal. I bought this film 
for this podcast. Uh, I even yeah. showed it to you when the DVD arrived in the mail. Um, I really liked it. I'm really biased <laughs> because, of course, I'm always reading for Portuguese cinema, but I really liked it. It's more than uh, a romance. It forces this cap this snapshot of a time of the dictatorship in Portugal and the the passivity and acquiescence that allows fascism to thrive. Uh, and it does this through the portrayal of this young man who is a very respected Portuguese actor who died very young in the 90s. And this is, is one of his most famous roles in cinema. So there is that layer. But the climax of the thing is brilliant. It's surrealist, almost, in how nonsensical it seems at some point, and how lackadaisical the lead guy is. As long as he gets the fuck this girl, he's fine. It, <laughs> he's up for anything. And it's like, oh, okay, I can see why you're such a good boy for a fascistic regime. Because you just go with everything. As long as everything's fine with you, you go with everything. And it's 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 not subtle, but it's a good commentary on the kind of mindset that lets fascism thrive. And it uses noir tropes very well. Victoria Abril um, is a dub, which kind of adds to the mystique of her character. She's otherworldly and playful. Um, she plays this woman who has two names and the duality of her character really carries over through a lot of aspects of the film, which sometimes it's confusing, but I actually embrace the confusion and I think it's the point of the film and it's actually very funny at some point. Like, and if someone can make a funeral funny, I think that's that kudos to you as it happens in the film. Um, the sound is shit, like a lot of Portuguese films from this time. I don't understand why we've always been so bad at sound mixing. It's improving over time, but come on. But it's visually beautiful. It's one of the few Portuguese films shot by Eduardo Serra, which is one of the few, well, sort of the only Portuguese person to have ever been nominated for an Oscar. He shot The Wings of the, the, Wings of the Dove and Girl with Pearl Earrings. He was nominated for that. He's a great cinematographer. And it shows, and the design, the art direction, and the costume design is also really great in this film at capturing 1939. And also, this is on a very personal note, I love Lisbon. I miss... What? You... I love Lisbon, the city, the capital ah. of Portugal. And I miss walking around on it. And, and I miss going outside and just being able to walk freely and going on the train and just walking through the city. And this film captures the city so beautifully. So it that part really touched me, which is silly. I mean, to be moved by the beautiful uh, establishing shots of the city. But oh, and I love the detail that, and, and this is this is the kind of thing only someone who who knows Lisbon will notice is that. Because there is this whole thing about about this main girl lying and maybe not being who she is, and again this all play of duality and fakery, 
she gives an address, but her house, if you know Lisbon, it's not that address. It's not that street where her house really is. It's kind of little detail that kind of adds to the surrealism of the climax that only someone who knows the city will understand. But I thought it was very clever and very lovely, and it's beautifully shot. Eduardo Serra is a, is a master cinematographer, and it shows here. Also, I love um, how the costumes are always coordinated with the sets, which creates a very harmonious, beautiful look. Like, there was a point where someone's shirt was the exact same color as the flowers in the pot behind them, and I was like, oh, pristine filmmaking. I love this. Editorials. <laughs> yeah. You went to this point, for that point. Um... Later, I will give. I will ask you to give me your five nominees and submissions included. So, watch out for that later. I'm just gonna run down the rest. <clears throat> Tramps, friendship between a former railroad worker and an alcoholic architect. The Tin Flute from Canada. It's premiered in Moscow. It's about a family in Montreal struggling with poverty and striving for a better life. My Memories of Old Beijing from China. It's about a woman recalling her childhood in the 1930s. Incomplete Eclipse from Czechoslovakia. It premiered in Berlin. It's about a 14-year-old man who goes into an institution for the visually impaired after an accident that leaves him blind. Zappa from Denmark. It's about, it premiered in the Uncertain Regards section in Cannes and in Austin, Moscow. It's about three boys during the 1960s getting involved in a burglary. The Turning Point from East Germany, written in Venice, it's about a German prisoner of war wrongly accused of war crimes. The House from Iceland, it's a mystery horror. It's about a woman who is haunted after she's left alone inside an old house by her husband for work. Uh, a married couple from Israel, I couldn't find any summary <laughs> at all, so never mind. Erendira from Mexico, it premiered in Cannes, it's about a beautiful woman who is forced into prostitution by her grandmother. After experiencing surreal visions. Maruja in Hell from Peru. It's about a woman in an abandoned factory who exploits its mentally ill workers. And Return from Hell. Why are we in Hell? From Romania. It's about two men depending on each other for survival during World War I. But something in the past would be the start of their conflict. In the White City from Switzerland. It premiered in Berlin, stars Bruno Ganz. It about, it's about a married Swiss sailor who jumps ship to Lisbon to, lives with, to live with a woman. Okay, whatever. And then Great Transport from Yugoslavia. It's about the transport of partisans from Vojvodina to Bosnia in 1943 World War II. Those are our 26 submissions in this category. So now let's, what's happening in my, all right. So my PowerPoint is hanging right now, so it's not working. So let's just go with the films that were not submitted, but you know, still worthy to be talked about. Um, you already mentioned a while ago, I think the biggest, one of the biggest, um, non-submissions here, if you want to expound on this. The Ballad of Narayama from Japan. It won Palm Door in Cannes. It's directed by Shoei Mamura. It's about a woman nearing 70 years old who must find a wife for her son before she's brought to the mountains to be left dead because that's a tradition in their place. Um, you've been raving about it. Can you expound on it? Um, 
Okay, so this is an adaptation of a folk tale in Japanese culture. Um, this has been adapted before into a film in 1958 called Marayama Bushiko. Um, this is a much more naturalistic um, adaptation, version of the same story. And it's just ravishing. Imamura is a brilliant director. And this film sometimes <laughs> almost veers into the realm of self-parody with all the insert shots of animals and nature. And because these films are all, have a lot of interest in the parallels between like humans and animals, and the behavior and cruelties of nature reflected in the cruelties of men, and that is very apparent in this film. It's just beautiful. The last, the big climatic sequence of the son bringing his mother to die in the mountains is amazing. And the performances are superb. This should have been a best actor and best actress contender if it, had, if it were eligible. It's so touching. It's devastating. And it's emotionally complex because at some point the, the woman is the one who wants to be left there. And she even she breaks her own teeth on a rock to become an invalid so she can so she can convince her son to bring her it's it's very sad it's a, it's also of because japanese culture puts a lot of value in the lives of the older generations and in, in respecting your elders so this very this is a perversion of that and the way it's depicted in the film it is examining and in some ways subverting these essential values of japanese culture and it does so beautifully and it's very humane it humanizes everyone it is both it can be funny and sexual and sexy and lustful and then it'd be quietly devastating the next scene the tonal balance is masterful and it really it's a great palm d'Or winner uh years ago i wrote a, a piece for magazine hd it's a portuguese publication where i ranked all the palm d'Or winners and this one was pretty high i think it's really great the other one also from Cannes, one best director is nostalgia from Soviet Union in Italy, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. It's about a Russian poet and his interpreter traveling to Italy to visit something. Nostalgia is beautiful. It's a masterpiece of cinema. It has one of the best endings ever captured on celluloid. It's during a period in Tarkovsky's career where after Stalker, he left the Soviet Union and he never returned. And this is his Italian movie. Um, I'm sure it couldn't have been submitted by Italy because it's too Soviet and the Soviet Union would never submit it because Tarkovsky wasn't particularly um, well viewed by the establishment at the time, to say the least. Uh, but it, 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 it is an amazing film about time most of all it's one of the best films ever made about the flexibility of time on screen 
both at a psychological and formal level, the last sequence, there is something so simple about someone trying to walk a certain length with a candle on their hand without a flame going out. And it's in real time. You see this, this very calm tracking scene. And it's literally one of the most suspenseful scenes ever put on film. It takes my breath away. And the final image is just beyond words. It starts on a little image of, uh, of what seems like a bucolic landscape. And it pulls back, it pulls back, and pulls back. And by the end of it, it's just a moment of pure transcendence. That, Val of Narayama and Fanny Alexander should have been, the, to me, the big contenders for the win. Bergman loves Tartakovsky, so it would have been great for me, for both of them to be nominated together. Bergman thought Tarkovsky was much better director than him. Uh, and he credited Tarkovsky with an ability to leave conventional narrative behind and really reach into the realm of dreams, of the imagination, and of time itself. And I do think nostalgia is one of the best examples of this. And it's not an easy film, I know. The climax is someone trying to not put a candle out. There is self-immolation in this film. It's glacially paced, but trust me, if you if you really are able to get into the same mood that the film is is offering, it is just sublime. I am not. I am not a believer. I'm an atheist, but that doesn't mean I'm not spiritual. And this film. To me, it's a testament to to the wondrous possibilities contained within the human soul and our own imagination. And and the miracle of... I feel like I'm crediting this with so much, but it's really wonderful. And I, I really hope anyone listening who hasn't seen it searches it out and gives it a chance because it's just beautiful. It's just so beautiful. <laughs> Next, before I start crying. <laughs> All right, so I just have to um, to make it clear that I tried to watch the two films, especially The Ballad of Narayama, but um, life is short <laughs> and I've had problems, <laughs> so I wasn't able to get time. Oh, oh please, don't take my words as criticizing you. I'm just, you know. No, I'm just making it clear because I really tried. <laughs> I really did. Um, so, the other Cannes Best Director winner is L'Argent from France. It's the last film of Robert Bezon. It's about a man's life goes downward spiraling <laughs> after getting a counterfeit money. Yeah, well, the film is more about the, that piece of counterfeit currency than about the people, the man, because it follows this counterfeit currency through several people. It's a very good film. It's, it's Robert Bresson's last film. Bresson is one of the great masters of cinema. He's very austere. And this film follows through on that. For someone who wants some more emotionally voluptuous cinema, maybe it's not the best, but it is pristinely made. It's considerations on humanity as 
examined through this inherently inhuman thing that is money is it's ravishing if you're up to it it's ravishing i can see someone saying it and it's finding it too severe but this episode is really me gushing about some of my favorite filmmakers of all time uh, bergman <laughs> bergman imamura um bresson Tarkovsky, but you know, really, it's, it's not his best film, and I don't think it's as great a uh, final chapter as Fanny Alexander self consciously is for Bergman's career. But it's still one hell of a great film to to go out on. Like, congratulations, Bresson, because it's amazing. Sugarcane Alley from France and Martinique. It won Best Actress in Venice. It's started by Eugène Palsy. It's about the lives of natives in Martinique under the French occupation where they are treated as slaves in the 1930s. Another film I really love. I'm a fan of Eugène Palsy. I've written about her before for the film experience. I think she's an amazing director. I'm very sad that she hasn't got more opportunities to, to show the range of her craft. Uh, Sugarcane Alley is another film that it's incredibly touching. It it reminds me of Satyajit Rai's Aparajito, Aparajito uh, from the 1950s, the second chapter in his Apu trilogy. And the performance of Darling Legitimus, I don't really know how to pronounce her name, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing, is out of this world. She should have won Best Actress in 1984 when she was eligible it is devastating work, especially for how unforced it feels. She completely deserved that award in Venice. And while the film isn't built around her, it's really more the story of the kid and the relationship with the grandmother, while central, isn't the focus. It's the soul and heart of the film. And it's also a great... It's a great film about storytelling too. There's an early scene in the film where an old man is telling a story to the kid and you can see a sort of the perseverance of a culture that is being eradicated by colonialism. Uh, again, it, it's a really good portrayal of how storytelling can immortalize a culture and how the lack of it can be its death. And it, it's a really good portrayal of this period where slavery was outlawed, but it still existed in technicalities within the colonial regime. And this wasn't particular to France and its colonies. Portugal is also at blame for this, as are a lot of European countries. And uh, it's really great. I recommend everyone watch it too. This year was great with lots of great movies. And I'm glad I could, you know, bash Laval because if not, I just seem like someone who lost everything unconditionally. <laughs> Pauline at the Beach from France. It won Best Director in Berlin, directed by Eric Romer. It's about Marion and cousin Pauline who traveled to spend vacation at the Normandy Beach. So this is um, an Eric Romer film. 
like a lot of his films, it's a, a summary collection of observations on the follies of people. It is very subtle and very beautifully put together. It's mainly based around conversations and the observation of conversations. And again, it's Romer. It's, it is just unbelievably great. Despite its simplicity, I think Romer's films really um, use simplicity as a key to truly miraculous cinema. And Polina Beach is an example of it. It is a film about love and the follies of love. And the I have to credit Romer for making basically the the voice of reason in this film be a teenage girl. You so seldom we see that in films. Um and he uses her perspective to really see the hypocrisies and lies and the honest humor in the way people move through social mores and social archetypes to talk and relate themselves to romantic relationships and sex. It's a very French film. And I think that's great. La Travieta from Italy. It was eligible this year, but was nominated for two Oscars in 1982, which we'll talk about also on the next episode for art direction and costume design. It was nominated for Golden Globe in 1982, National Board of Review Top 5, BAFTA nomination. It's directed by Franco Zeffirelli, and it's based on the opera by Giuseppe Verdi. Uh, this is a brilliant staging of La Traviata. It's great. It's great to look at. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail because we can talk about this for the 1982 episode. I'm just going to say that Piero Torres is one of the best costume designers that has ever lived, and his designs for this film are breathtaking in their intricacy and their beauty. This film, despite being somewhat close to what someone might regard as a film of play, really takes the excessive marvel of opera to really great cinematic really translates that grandness to cinema in a way that i found very compelling it's just beautiful to look at it just put it on and use it use it as a living painting just project it onto your wall instead of putting up a pretty picture because it's just gorgeous would you prefer this to be submitted by italy uh, and compared to any ship sails on sail on sail on yeah, but I think Italy should have submitted nostalgia, even if... You know. Oh, yeah. Well, and if, and, and, if, and if the Academy complained, they could say, and Laval is Algerian. What? <laughs> Gabriela from Brazil. It's about a wealth, wealthy Turkish bar owner who takes a woman at his cooking lover. Uh, one thing that I found interesting is that it was nominated for Audio Video Network Awards for... Um, best yes. softcore nomination in 1986. <laughs> I saw that too. Okay. okay. So this is based on a, on a very famous book by the same author of Dona Flor and Their Two Husbands. Um, and this is the film version of that. That book had been adapted in the 70s to a, a telenovela, a soap opera. And it was the first telenovela to be broadcast in Portuguese television. It was incredibly famous and, and it was, had a huge cultural impact in Portugal. Like my 
my parents remember the scandal when it premiered. Uh, even if the show is not nearly as explicit and graphic in its depiction of sex as the film is. Um, the show also delves much more into the politics of this literary narrative than the film does. It's a bit of a disappointment in the way it sands off the political aspects of the story, because I think most of all, this is a political narrative, even though it dazzles you with sex. Um, Sonia Braga is incandescent in the title role of Gabriela. Marcello Mastriani is difficult to understand, speaking Brazilian Portuguese with an Italian accent. Uh, but it, 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 was, it, it was still, I thought the film wasn't very good, but the soundtrack is killer. I like the actors. Um, you know, it's, I hate saying this, but the book is so much better than the film. It's sort of disappointing. I hate when really politically charged works are turned into factile entertainment for the sake of of um, of luck, you know, of movie success. Um, I think it's part of the reason why the film hasn't endured nearly as much as the telenovela. Also, it's done us 130 episodes to develop its story. So, you know. Not that, not the last film about sex, Kanagawa Wars from Japan. I'm just going <laughs> to read a summary because I don't know oh. what to do with this. Um, it's about... All right, I found it a while ago. Where is it? Oh, where is it? <laughs> I, I could not stand the images that I'm seeing, so I'm just going to read it. Um, the summary that I would get from Mubi. All right. Two sexually energized young women who live in a high-rise apartment building happen one day to spy from their window a mother and a son making love in the apartment across from theirs. They decide to stage a rescue attempt to free him uh, in the hopes of uh, introducing him to a healthy sex life. Claudio, take it away. I don't want to get involved in this. I want to assume because it was the first feature of Kiyoshi Kurosawa, who's a director I, I generally really like nowadays. He did things like Journey to the Shore and Tokyo Sonata. <laughs> and this is his first feature, and it's a trip and a half. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pink film. Uh, pinku is a, is a type of softcore porn, basically, in Japan. It's a very sexual film, obviously. Um, it's really out to shock and titillate, but it's also really, it doesn't take itself seriously at all. It's very, it's very aware of its own ridiculousness and able to laugh at itself. And what surprises me is how, how you can really see the formalistic precision of, of, Kurosawa's, Kyoshi Kurosawa, not to be confused with Akira Kurosawa, Kyoshi Kurosawa's later films start to germinate in this really body, really ridiculous story. <laughs> Though, I have to say, it does look like a film that was made right out of film school. And the most laughable aspect of that is the first time 
the protagonist sees the son having sex with his own mother. They do so against a wall that is full of uh, of n- titles from Nouvelle Vague films. And I, was like, I was like rolling my eyes, okay. Fine, you just got out of film school, you watch a lot of Nouvelle Vague. And the film is very infused with that, the, the brattiness of the Nouvelle Vague cinema, at least the the um, the right bank sort of nouvelle vaccine and not necessarily the left bank with Barbara and René. Anyway, <laughs> it's short at least. I'm glad I did not watch it. Um, <laughs> Sans Soleil from France. It's a uh, documentary <laughs> it's about a woman narrating the contemplative writings of a seasoned world traveler focusing on contemporary Japan I just copied it from somewhere as much as I love um, L'Argent and Entre Nous I would have probably my favorite French film from this film this year this film year is probably Sans Soleil I think it's one of the best films ever made about memory about the um, not so much remembering a life, whatever, but the concept of memory and the plasticity of it and the degradation of memory. It's an experimental film. I don't know if I would call it a documentary. It's a Chris Marker film. Chris Marker was one of, to me, one of the most interesting directors in the Nouvelle Vague. I was mentioning the right bank and the left bank. I think the left bank directors like Agnès Varda, Jacques, Jacques Demy, um Alain René and Chris Marker are much more interesting than the likes of François Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard. I know that's an unpopular opinion. But yeah, Chris Marker just... they It just leaves the convention of narrative and the convention of how a film is supposed to work right out the door. He doesn't even try to nod towards it. And he makes this, these hypnotic films and Sans Soleil is his best film, in my opinion, even if I have a lot of respect for for level five and oh I can't believe I'm forgetting his most famous film right now. Uh it's the one in onto on which Twelve Monkeys is based upon. I'm sorry, I can't I, I'm having oh I can't remember. Anyway, it's very good. It's very interesting. It's not for everyone, it's an experimental film. You should know that before you go into it. But I think it's, again, one of the best explorations of memory, of remembrance. And even if film as a manifestation of memory materialized, because film itself is like a, a memory that is materialized in celluloid, and the film kind of explores that through a very interesting sequence where they talk about visualizing the ineffable. And I won't say more about it because it's, First, because it's very complicated to explain, and second, because you really should, everyone should really experience it fresh for the first time, as I did, and I, I was dazzled by it. All right. Now let's go to some Filipino films. Uh, uh, I've made it a point to highlight them, especially um, from 1984 to 1976. I will do that because this is really our freaking golden age, and um, unfortunately, we didn't submit 
in uh, except 1976 and 1984 so that's stupid uh you've seen one it's miracle um, it premiered in Berlin and in Chicago. It won Bronze Hugo. It's directed by Ishmael Bernal. And I don't have a summary here in my script, but I know it from my heart. It's about um, it's about a, a woman from the province who claims that she saw the Virgin Mary. And then she starts healing people. And then people come to their town. And it's become there's this fanatic, um, group of fanatics that go after her and uh, go after her that really um, start to take her as a sort of a religious image and that just there's a domino conflict within the people in the town around her um stars um probably the best filipino actress that ever lived it's Nora Honor, and it's directed by a national artist ishmael bernal um what do you think of miracle i thought it was great I even told you it would be a really great contender for best screenplay if that had been eligible. Um, its exploration of faith was fascinating to me, um, both in its cynicism and also in its paradoxical earnestness. It's a tragedy. I thought the performances were just brilliant, especially the main actress and also um, the one who plays her friend coming from the city, the one that basically starts a brothel, Nemia. I don't remember the actress's name, but the character is Nemia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I think it was brilliantly performed. Gigi it reminded me of a lot of other films I love or appreciate. Again, as I told you, I'm an atheist, but I'm very interested in films about spirituality and about the role of faith in people's lives. And I thought... This is one of the best I've seen in a long time. Uh, yeah. It reminded me, for example, of Ace in the Hole, of the, of the miracle um, sequence, the miracle chapter in La Dolce Vita. It reminded me of the song of Bernadette. Uh, yeah, and the performances are just stupendous. I loved the way it mirrors composition of the like you can almost split the film in two and and the and there are a lot of scenes that are mirroring each other and the when you revisit a certain setting a certain composition the sense of loss from like at the beginning it all seemed so miserable but at the same time there seems to the chaos that was brought upon by what happens in the film gives on this sense of loss to these later scenes, this devastation, even of the soul, not just of physical or the mind of, or even the community, which is ravaged by this, this phenomenon. And it's a film that to me really spoke about the dangers of blind faith, but also I think the importance of something to give people hope because Again, I think this film is cynical, but I think it's also earnest because people need hope. And in some cases, it seems like faith is the thing that gives them a purpose. And especially to the community depicted in the film, even if it's also the cause of their eventual destruction within the film structure. I'm I'm sorry if I'm being uh, dumb about this film. I'm missing probably a lot of cultural nuances of it. I just really liked it. 
uh, you know, you speak of it because you clearly know more than me. This is you watching Fanny Alexander talking to me. That our places are reversed. Yeah, I sh it should be an entire episode in this film. Um, I've been watching this even before it was restored um, gloriously. Um, so I was watching an un unrestored version of it, you know, with hard-coded Japanese subtitles on the side and like really rough film scratches and all that. And, and I had a DVD of that, but I lost it, I guess. Um, I think this is the best film of Ishmael Bernal. I think this is the best performance of Nora Nor. I think it's in the top five best Filipino films ever. I just love how I loved you know you know the thing is it's not the kind of filmmaking that I would fall in love with usually but I really loved how this was um the filmmaking was used here. It's very restrained. It's so well thought of, so many layers. Um I actually spoke with a screenwriter, uh Ricky Lee. Ricardo Lee, uh, I was able to chat him like, oh, I really loved your work, blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> I was in front of his face, oh, I really love your work. <laughs> and um, we I, um, when I was young, that screenwriting book, because he wrote a very famous screenwriting book, is hanging around inside our house since I was six years old. And that's one of the first things I was reading, like, oh, screenwriting, six years old, okay. And that's one of the things that inspired me to watch, um, to be a filmmaker, which I am now, wow. Um, and then, I don't know, it's just, We'll be talking about like finding Alexander becoming uh, this feels really complete um, filmmaking. I think Miracle is a complete film. I think um, it is a product of a time. You know, it was it was funny because it was um, produced by the Experimental Cinema of the Philippines, which is government funding. But then, you know, during a time of dictatorship, but that film house produced a lot of subversive films <laughs> with government funding. And, um, it was just, um, they don't make films like that anymore here. I don't, I think that's a film that could only be made in the eighties. Um, I have to share this story. This is like a very famous story here in the Philippines, but those 2000, I think 2000 to 5,000 extras in the final scene of the film, oh, the, yeah. those were the real fan club of Nora Onor and that <laughs> province. Oh really? <laughs> so that's 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 how much star power he has with the masses. It's like, oh, we need to shoot the students. Just call the fan club in that province, and then they came in droves, and that's like two to five thousand crew members, uh, crew members extras, and Nora Honor only had one take to do that final scene, because once they fired a gunshot. There are crowd directors everywhere, cameras set up everywhere. They're reaching the limit of how many cameras they could have because it's such a huge stampede. And um, Nora Honor becoming uh, is, you know, Nora Honor did her stuff. She nailed it in one take, and that was that take. And um, I'm so just, I'm really proud of this film because. Um, you know, I tweeted something presumptuous, uh, <laughs> um, you know, at the time, because I was like, um, I was saying something like, 
no judgments, but I think our films from this period could easily topple um, the winners of foreign language film at the Oscars without having seen <laughs> the winners at the time. And now that I've seen, uh, I've seen you know the the nominees and submissions of this year. I really wish we submitted this one because I think we'd have put up a fight. Um, I don't know if we'd be nominated, maybe not, but um, you know, it premiered in Berlin and won something in Chicago. So I don't know. I just I really love this film, and I was supposed to type something, but I can't type because I'm just like manifesting my love for this film, and um, it's just a tremendous piece of work that critiques so many things at once and does it very well. It's um it's a sword with so many edges. And um in two thousand eight it was selected as the best film of all time from the Asia Pacific re Asia Pacific region. So um but it was a bomb. Financially. Even with, even with such a big star, that's surprising. Because this was released as part of the Metro Manila Film Festival, and it was released on December 25. What? <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I've heard it was a bomb. I, I mean, that's not the kind of film you want to watch at Christmas, I suppose. Or maybe not a bomb, but it did not do as well as expected. Given this, because at the film only Nora Honor is the star. The rest are like theater actors. This is some of the, a lot of them like first time in film, and the cast um, is really good overall. I think. Yeah, so proud of it, and I'm so happy you finally watched it. Oh. Yeah, I watched it because of you. So you know, thank you for recommending it. True friends. <laughs> anyway, she did not sweep Best Actress that year because another performance dominated that year because they were criticizing they thought she was just doing all of this <laughs> not really acting <laughs> um critics at the time which the film that beat laura honor in many film awards we'll talk about in 1982 um it's another great actress so um but yeah if i really hope we submitted this but this is not the only one that was um, great <laughs> in this year we also had Batch 81 it's read by Mike DeLeon it's about a group of um, fraternity neophytes who are just trying to get through uh, the whole initiation process and man man wow <laughs> this is just brilliant filmmaking I think you will love this I think you will um, it's a brilliant, disturbing, violent at times, satirical, dark, just austere filmmaking from Mike DeLeon. It was actually delayed. It was Batch 81, but it was released in 1982 because there were fears of like it being, you know, obvious political connections. But then... Um, and it has this brilliant homage to Cabaret. Like, I'm just gonna say one of the parts of the whole fraternity uh, initiation process of fraternity of this fraternity is to 
perform in like a college night and they performed the the neophytes performed songs from a cabaret like one of them is dressed dressed as Sally Bowles one of them is dressed as the master of ceremonies and in swastika <laughs> this category really um and then yeah so I'm just and then the last one that I would highlight is moral moral um, from Marie Ludia Zabaya. It's about four women. It's uh, a group of friends. You know, one of them is, uh, I have to get this one right. One of them is a drug addict who is in, in love with an activist. The other one is hooking up with her ex-husband who's actually gay. The other one is a bad singer. Um, and the fourth one is kind of, um, a woman trapped in a very conservative, um, housewife role, like, you know, baby factory kind of role. Um, and these are like the four women that create this bond. (laughs) And I haven't seen the restored version yet, but gosh, it was really, it's a, anyway, I'll, I'll send you the films. Anyway, so. Um, those <laughs> really have brilliant films from this. Year. I just have to take this time because we really had brilliant films, and a lot of them are getting restored and available on demand. So great, great, great! Like Miracle is on demand. Batch Eighty One is also on demand, I think, and Moral is also on on demand. Uh, I think worldwide. So that's great. So um, it's a landmark film. Uh, it's it's part of a loose trilogy of like women's struggles because. Off the Flesh is about, uh, anyway, Brutal, Moral, and Off the Flesh. And uh, Marilu Diazabai is a brilliant filmmaker, probably the best female filmmaker that we ever had. Um, but that's our three films <laughs> from my country. And I'm just going to name drop a few more films. Karij from India, it won Jury Prize in Cannes. It's written by Mirinal Sen. It's about a I'm just going to quote this. A young servant boy dies under mysterious circumstances. His employers, his employers, guilty of not treating the boy well, are fearing revenge from the parents of the boy in a police investigation. A story of Piera from Cannes, one best actress, directed by Marco Ferreri, is about an incestuous relationship between the mother and the daughter. It's based on an autobiography. It's, it's an autobiography. And then uh, first name Carmen from France. It won Golden Lion in Venice, directed by Jean-Luc Godard. It's loosely based on Carmen as well. And then La Colmena from Spain. It won Golden Bear in Berlin. It's directed by Mario Camus. It's about, uh, in 1943, Madrid, an old cafe serves as a base for poets and game players and everyone else. And a season in Hakari from Turkey. It won Special Jury Prize in Berlin. It's directed by Erden Kiral. Kiral is about a story of a teacher who goes into banishment and teaches in a town which lays down on the southern eastern border of Turkey. Uh, before we continue, I think it's official. We are longer than Fanny Alexander. And I don't the know if all, I don't know the if it's only the theatrical cuts. A theatrical cut. And then uh, we're very close to breaking because before we continue, you have the record for the longest episode with three hour forty two minutes for No Man's Land. We're close to breaking it. Well, so... the Kiwi probably edit it a little bit, no? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
get ready because I'm going to ask you, like, I'm going to rank you to rank to five. All right, anyway. So do you think, Claudia, do you think Fanny Alexander is a deserving winner of this category? Like, after all I said, I think it's obvious. Of course. Yeah. It is. It is. I think it's... Uh... I mean, I would admit I probably more on the respect it but love it. But I think what it achieves is unlike anything from this year. So, with the ones I've seen. So... Uh, it's 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 towering. It's it's rightfully intimidating. But when you just surrender all the expectations that you have, like, oh, one of the greatest of all time. When you watch it, it's a very personal story right here, and just like, just like, all of film studies in film language, injected to one film. <laughs> so that's Fan Alexander. All right, so Claudia, I want you to be ready because I'm going to ask you for three rankings. First one, let's rank. The five nominees from five to one. What's your number five? Uh, my number five is Lebel. My number five is Antoinou. Okay. <laughs> your number four? Um, the Revolt of Job. My number four is Lebel. What's your number three? Uh, Carmen. My number three is Carmen. Your two and one. Well, my two is entre nous. My one is Fanny and Alexander. All right. For now, my two would be Fanny and Alexander. Mm-hmm. And my one would be The Revolt of Job. Okay. <laughs> I was so worried because I thought you would disconnect this call. Anyway. Oh, come on. I never did. <laughs> But uh, I mute people. You're really into the Holocaust movies. <laughs> this category is hurting your brain. <laughs> yeah, and it, it it you know it's a testament to the film. If you know I'm yeah. I'm tired of them, and t- this is still my number one. But we'll see, we'll see. I think you know time will tell. Um, but, uh, I kind of appreciate our you know liking one of these Holocaust movies for a change. Maybe incredibly refreshing, considering yeah. the amount of them you've been having to watch for this been injecting to my system <sighs> yeah it's, it's probably exhausting i couldn't do it i mean as of today i'm gonna watch like 1981 and you know my mephisto has some swastikas there so i'm getting ready it's very <laughs> good, I, <think. laughs> yeah. I hope it is i hope i hope i would like it i hope i would oh but there are a lot of nazis so you know it's it's your usual fetish I wasn't going to say that. I would say it's your usual order for this for this podcast. German guys ruin me. Anyway. Um, all right. So you've seen, aside from the five nominees, you've seen eight submissions. Yes. If I'm going to make you to give me a five from those 13 total, okay. what would be your five? Um, in order of preference? Yes. Thank you. Okay. Um, five, growing up. Fourth, the fourth man. And then three, Carmen, two, entre nous, and one, Fanny and Alexander. Okay. Now, adding the films that were not submitted. Okay. I didn't what would be your five? 
Mm, okay, this one is tougher. Um, what is it? Uh, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I didn't prepare this one. Don't uh, pressure me. I love to catch you off guard. You're always so prepared. I love doing this. Oh no, he's making a list right now. Oh, real time listeners, he's making a real list. <laughs> You're such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> you always come so prepared, you know, in every discussion that we have. So I love when you're not prepared and just scrambling like, oh, shit. And like, yep. <laughs> Kill your darlings. <laughs> Can I just say my runner-up? <laughs> no runners-up. Oh, no. There are runners-up. <laughs> no runners-up. You can't do this to me. I refuse. I okay. will edit out your, your runners-up. <laughs> my runner-up is Himala from the Philippines. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, for your runner-up. Woo! <laughs> uh, my five would be Sugarcane Alley. In fourth, The Ballad of Narayama. In third, Sans Soleil. In second, Nostalgia. And in first, Finding Alexander. Thank you so much for the runner-up. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, wow. No, I don't know. Because, uh, Sans Soleil would be for France. Sugar Canale, it's also France production, but it's also from the Martinique. Let's go and with Martinique. They- if they allowed Laval to be Algerian, like, give me a break. Yeah. Sugar cane alley. It's completely set in Martinique. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I wanted to nominate Himalo, but I love Sugar cane alley more. No, that's okay. I mean, on my end, I would put it on top of everything I've seen. So. Yeah. So, um, Claudio, thank you so much for all the films you've watched for this episode i you know ever since we talked on um on no man's land i i knew i wanted to have you back i was just like trying to find a film to for you to come back you know it's uh it's been a pretty interesting ride and uh yeah thank you so much thank you so much for inviting me (laughs) was it anticlimactic (laughs) no and thank you for being such a great friend Oh, thank you. Thank you for being such a great friend. Woo. Take notes. <laughs> anyway. Um, anyway, um, can you tell our listeners before... Uh, sorry. Can you tell our listeners where can they find you again on the internet? Okay. You can find my writing at the Film Experience, uh, Magazine HD, if you can read in Portuguese, and Photogenie. You can also find me at Claudio Alves DC on Twitter and Letterboxd. Yep, you can find me on Twitter at Carlos Ohana. This podcast at One Inch Barrier. This podcast is everywhere. Again, the final bonus episode is going to come next week for Honeyland. It's going to be exciting. Uh, and then... Um, I hope you edit this down so I don't get a bad reputation. <laughs> You're really living up to your reputation as a three-hour man. So. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm really doing for my position of being completely incapable of being sexy. <laughs> it's true. I, I'm sorry. 
writing capsule reviews is very difficult for me, but I try. <laughs> Again, Fadio, thank you so much for this um, as long. We're nearing the TV version, but uh, thank you so much for um, coming to this episode again. I'm wishing you all well. This is a goodbye for now. And together, let us break the one-inch barrier. Thank you.